Okay. Um, so here's here's what the agenda um, is. This is really um, stimulated by the conversation on, on Professor Stadlan's um, Facebook page. There's an article by Professor Jeffrey Rubenstein, uh, which critiques Rabbi J. David Bleich's uh, definition of Gosses. So we're going to be taking, uh, the, we're going to use the critique as a frame, but basically the issue that we want to address is what is the definition of Gosses for a very specific purpose? Uh, I have two disclaimers that I need to mention um, first. Uh, one is Professor Rubenstein, who may or may not join us, uh, is, um, is a really good scholar. I have enormous appreciation for his scholarship. This goes back to when we were in uh, Professor Olivni's class in Columbia together many years ago. Uh, so while, I, as you'll see, that I have strong critiques of this article um, that should not be perceived as a critique of his scholarship in general. Um, Jane David Bleich uh, is my teacher, and I think uh, it's fair to say my beloved teacher. There are a few teachers uh, who I really have that enormous relationship with, so it's fair to claim that I'm biased. The bias, however, should not be to the saying that he is correct, um, because it's no fun having a teacher who is always correct. Uh, the bias should be that, of course, no one else is allowed to say he's incorrect except for me. Uh, which, uh, right? So that you, might, you can you can see that bias. You can see that bias in this year uh, if you want or not. Okay, so let's go to the uh, let's go to the Makarot, and we're going to read an excerpt from uh, Professor Rubenstein's uh, article first. We'll read his his citation from Bleich, and we'll talk about what what he would take to right, to evaluate. Uh, the critique and the claim, and then I'm going to do some basic methodological premises that probably the vast majority of you know, but it's good to be reminded of because you forget them as things are as things are happening. And um, and then we'll we'll start the actual uh, the actual um, uh, learning together. Right? I'm, I, it's going to be more directed than I wanted it to be, but um, but um, do do ask questions. Do ask questions on. Uh, on, on the chat, and if you feel, if you, and do say, Rabbi Clapper, you need to call me now because your question uh, looks that way. I don't have, I don't necessarily have the visuals. Say, so when I was in uh, 10th grade, I worked out a code with my Rebbe that uh, if I raised, if I raised my left, my left eyebrow, I think he could go on with the shirt. It wasn't a big deal. If I raised my right eyebrow, eyebrow, he could go on with the shirt, but he might regret it. And if you, and if I raised both eyebrows, the shirt was over. There was no point. I'm not calling on me, right? So I don't have those visual cues with you. So you can, um, you can you can figure out how you need to alert me. Okay, so here's what Professor Rubenstein says. This article presents a detailed history of the rabbinic concept of the gosses. Now he offers a definition, which is a little bit of cheating now. The gosses is the individual in the dying process. So we'll have to figure out if that's really the right um, the right definition and what defines the dying process, if that is a definition, if, it's not, if it is more than circular. It traces the sources of the prevalent opinion that a gosses is someone who will inevitably die within three days. And we're going to spend a lot of time on the meaning of the word inevitably. A view prom promoted primarily by Rabbi J. David Blay, that could be true. Um, let's say that's true. And identifies the background and history of this definition. I argue that this opinion does not reflect the general view of traditional authorities from the Middle Ages um, through the present. Um, okay, right, that's, that's certainly uh, perfectly reasonable. The definition of the ghost is, is of considerable ethical significance because traditional Jewish sources that permit the withholding or withdrawal of medical treatment sometimes called passive euthanasia, are, with a few exceptions, limited to the ghost So this is really a key line, right? It tells you what we're interested in. We're interested in the definition of the ghost for this purpose, the purpose of withholding or withdrawal of, of uh, medical treatment. Okay. So now let's see right, whether Rabbi Bleich, in fact, said that uh, a ghost is someone who will inevitably die within three days. So Rabbi Bleich says, is, it appears any patient 
who may reasonably be deemed capable of potential survival for a period of 72 hours cannot be considered a ghost state. So this is a very, this is a mouthful, right? Who may reasonably be considered uh, deemed capable of potential survival for a period of 72 hours. Uh, that's not quite the same as will inevitably die. We'll have to figure out what the differences are between these possibilities. And he tells you why. If the patient is capable of surviving this length of time, the death process cannot be deemed to have commenced. And then he makes a stronger statement above. It appears that Halakha assumes axiomatically, I'm not sure how else you assume things, that the death process or the act of dying cannot be longer than 72 hours in duration. So we have three separate statements, right? One is a, definite, a patient who cannot reasonably be capable of potential survival for 72 hours, a patient capable of surviving, then, right, then, we change, then we can't start the death process, and that is an axiomatic uh, assumption of halakha. So you have to figure out how all those three sentences work together. Now, this is evidenced by the ruling that one must commence to observe the laws of mourning three days after a relative have been, has been observed in a state of gesisa. So we'll see that, that um, it is evidenced by such ruling. It may We'll have to see exactly what that ruling is. And some authorities even permit a wife to remarry in the absence of witnesses testifying to the actual death of the husband, provided the testimony is forthcoming to the effect that her husband was observed in a state of gesisa. So this is, so A, a, you have to, the one ruling is you have to start mourning three days after a relative was has been observed in a state of gesisa. Let's say we're going to modify that a little bit. Some authorities even print a wife to remarry, not just to start mourning, but even to remarry. These authorities maintain, maintain that the testimony of witnesses with regard to gesisa, ipso facto, the, the italics are confusing languages there, constitutes legal proof of a state of widowhood commencing three days following the onset of gesisa. Um, Maybe. Okay, it appears that this state is not determined by a patient's ability to survive solely by natural means for this period unaided by drugs or medicine. The implication is that the ghost is one who cannot, under any circumstances, be maintained alive for a period of 72 hours, right? So this is a little bit stronger. This is all right, life language, right? We have, as we have lots of different languages, right? We have reasonably, may reasonably be deemed capable of potential survival for a period of 72 hours. Uh, we have capable of surviving this length of time. Um, that probably is just shorthand for may reasonably be deemed capable of surviving it, right? We have the question of whether it defines the patient as a ghost face, the death process have commenced, or are we dealing with, or uh, dealing with the, the nature of the act of dying? Um, we have two pieces of evidence, mourning and remarriage. And then, right, the strongest claim that's gonna matter most for our purposes is that we define survival as solely by natural means, unaided by unaided by drugs or medicine. Okay, so that's the presentation of Blake's position. And Professor Rubenstein's uh, comment is, thus Ray Blake basis is claimed that a ghostface can never live more than three days, right? That's how he defines it, as a ghostface can never live more than three days. Almost exclusively in a narrow decontextualized reading of Falk, that's a commentary called The Preacher on the Tour that we'll meet, um, who says right? Who says that that the nature of gesisa is to go on for three days, and on five-ish, that's the Beit Shmuel's problematic ruling. It, that's the ruling that the wife can remarry, with a couple of other feeble supports. He does not mention the controversy surrounding the Beit Shmuel's ruling about um, about the act, about the wife's remarry. That's not quite fair because he says some authorities even permit. That makes it pretty clear that there's a controversy. Um, Although well, he does refer to footnote to a few authorities who object will be obliquely. Okay, I don't think that's quite fair. Um, nor does he mention other evidence to the contrary, such as the view that a minority of ghosts assume live. 
So this is a very big claim, right? Right, and this is connected to right. Right, Blake said, according to Professor Rubenstein, that the individual that the ghost says is someone who will inevitably die within three days, and it follows if you say inevitably, it follows that if you take the position that a minority of ghosts him live, you are contradicting Rabbi Blake's position, or Rabbi Blake's position is against anyone who says that. Right, there are therefore many traditional authorities that disagree with the three-day definition of a ghost says. I would even right, either implicitly or explicitly because they say a minority of ghosts him live, or because they disagree with the Beit Shmuel's ruling about remarriage. I would even say this is the view of the vast majority, and he gives you a whole list of people who uh, he thinks disagree uh, fundamentally. And then he says, if uses of phrases such as ghosts for a long time, and a minority of ghosts him live recover, right, um, entails a rejection of the three-day definition, we can add in a whole list of other people. Many more sources could be cited, but this is not the forum to survey every other halachic opinion. Okay, so there you got it. The way Professor Rubenstein presents it, um, Rabbi Bleich says three days, Rabbi Bleich says three days inevitably. Um, three days inevitably is based on two pieces of evidence. One, a claim that you start mourning three days later. Two, a claim that a wife can remarry if there's been evidence that three days ago the husband was a gosais. And the counter to that is any, anybody who disagrees with the position the wife can remarry. Um, anybody who says that only most ghosts him uh, only most ghosts of sim um, uh, die, and not or not, and not all ghosts of sim. Okay, so now we're going to get to my uh, my my rules for the conversation. I think are helpful, obvious things, but just to know, one is etymology is not meaning. Okay, so if you know what the word ghost say, you know the etymology of the word ghost says, so it doesn't mean you know what it means. For example, right, if you know that the the etymology of the word lunatic, that does not tell you anything about what it means for a person to be crazy or insane. Um, Secondly, meaning is not legal meaning. Just what a word means in ordinary language is not the same thing as what it means in the context of a body of law. So to say that somebody is crazy is not the, is not the same as to say that halakhically they have the status of a shota. Okay, third thing is that neither meaning nor legal meaning is stable over person. Different people can define the, word, the words different ways, both in ordinary language and in legal meaning. Place, you can have right, regional dialects, time, Right, obviously the meanings of words uh, changes diachronically, or context, and this is specifically, this is important, right, you know that words can mean different things in your own conversation, depending who you're talking to, but particularly legally, there's no basis for assuming that the same word, even in when it has the same underlying semantic meaning, um, has the same legal definition in different contexts. Um, for example, the term shota, right, for, right, for, we can translate as crazy and competent, whatever you want it, uh, means very different things in the context of do you have an obligation to perform mitzvot or are you capable of divorcing your um, divorcing your wife or accepting a divorce from your husband? Right. So just because we know what the word, we know the etymology won't tell us what the word ghost says means legally. The meaning of the word ghost says in ordinary discourse won't tell us what it means legally. The meaning in, as used by one person won't tell us what the meaning is for everybody. The meaning in one context, even if it's even if it's a consensus, won't tell us what it means in other contexts, and all of those things are variable by lots of figures, um, by, by along all these variables. Okay, um, in halacha specifically, I want to point right. Halacha doesn't it's not only context in halacha, but it's also degree of authority. You can have one meaning for the purposes of biblical law, we call deraita, and another meaning for the purposes of rabbinic law. You can have one meaning for the purpose of, of after the fact, that's Bidiyavad, and one meaning for the purpose of Luchachila, as Ab initio. 
And if there are many other ways, as we'll see, in which halakha can have different definitions of the same term in the same legal context, depending on what level uh, we, are, uh, we, are, we are talking about. Also, of course, definitions are subject to disagreement. Um, and then what matters to us, right, is that all these things I'm saying specifically, not just about goses, I'm saying it about the term certainty, which is really important because Professor Rubinstein's critique of Reich depends on certain um, concepts of certainty. It applies to death. So when we try and talk about the relationship between negosis and death, so we have to realize that the word dead, death doesn't mean the same thing. And just for fun, I threw in the right since you got uh, uh, certainty and death, we might as well throw in the taxes are also a controversial term that we know in the United States uh, from Obamacare. Right? That uh, what, what whether something is defined as a tax or not is a uh, is a highly controversial thing. Okay, so let's start by looking at um, what we might call you. Um, Etymological or uh, or meaning definitions of ghosts as opposed to legal meanings. So there's a story in the Rishalme, story of the Shalmei Rebbe This is the the follow up to the famous Avin uh, episode. He is a ghostes erev Shabbos im Chashecha. Now I translate that as he is a ghostes. You should be careful. That's not right because ghostes is probably a verb, right? It's not that a person is a ghostes. It's a person is being ghostes, right? If you want in. Uh, Change my accent to make the point. So Rebeliezer is being a goses on Friday, uh, Friday Friday afternoon. His son comes to take his fillin off because he worked fillin all day, but you take him off for Shabbos. He get, makes a comment to his son that makes the son think that he's crazy, and his son goes out and says, "Oh my goodness, my son's my father's mind is gone." Oi! And he says to him, "No, really not. Right? What I said to you made perfect sense." And now everybody, all the other students around, see it. Oh, good, Rebeliezer is in good shape. And they come in and they start asking him halachic questions, and he answers them correctly. Right, the things that are tummy, he says tummy. The things that are tohor, he says tohor. And the last question he asks, he says tohor, and then he dies. Okay, what do we learn from this about the goses? We learn uh, we don't right. We can't learn anything about how long a goses lives because we don't know how long before how long he's been goses already. We just know that he's at least still a goses on Friday on uh, on Friday evening. So it can't tell us anything about time. Uh, all it can tell us is that you know, goes a goes says, you know, this goes says dies, and that there's some kind of concern that a goes says, it seems like there's some kind of concern that a goes says loses their mind at some point. Okay, that's all we can know. It doesn't help us very much at all. Uh, the Rambam in his commentary to Masecha Arachin, which we'll meet, says a goes says, what's a goes says? Yodua. Everyone knows what a goes says is, and that means that they have the voice of his throat is heard at the time of death. The Rambam seems to be saying your goes says, Actually, at the time of death, but bishata mita doesn't could mean during the time of death. So it's, it sounds a little bit fairly immediate, but it's not a clear definition. Um, the um, but the thing is, the Ram, the Rambam's uh, commentary is written in Arabic. It exists. Um, there are two standard editions. Right, one is the edition printed in the Vilna Shas, which is very similar to the edition printed in uh, in the Meiri, um, and that's that's a medieval translation. Although the Miri is not the same as the one in the in the Villa Shas, and that, that is a mystery that no one's no one has explained to me. And then there's um, the modern translation by Rav Yosef Kappa. Rav Yosef Kappa has a completely different translation. He says Goses, and he gives you the original Arabic translation, which means he's at his last breaths. Well, that's not the same thing as a death rattle. So often in such cases, um, Rav Kappa held that um, actually had manuscripts that the Rambam changed his mind. It was an earlier edition, which wrote one thing, and that earlier edition is what's translated in the Vilna Shas. 
um, and the other right, the other version of the, of the commentary, and the and he's and uh, and the Rambam's latest translation, latest uh, manuscript is what he's translating. In this case, he says there is an earlier manuscript, uh, just that the original translator didn't want to translate the Arabic, so he made his own stuff up. That's what he says, right? Okay, so I don't know what the Rambam really wrote. Uh, whether this idea of a death rattle is really the Rambam or somebody else uh, medieval. Um, the, right, so the Shulchan Aruch, uh, the, right, the Rav Yosef Kara, the, the author of the original Shulchan Aruch, doesn't translate it. The Ramah puts in a, uh, a, tr- a translation which makes it mean uh, something something to do with the word Gosias relates to the word chest grammatically from a, uh, a Pasuk in Yeshaya. And a Gosias means Shakarov Lemisa Ma'ale Lecha Bigrono, the person. Uh, the person who is close to death brings up uh, some kind of uh, secretion liquid in their throat because of the narrowness of the chest. All right, so he gives you a etymological definition that leads to a physiological um, reality that the Ramah says the same thing in Chosh uh, Mishpat. Um, and you can see other people, right, that translation, because, right, this is, the, this Shulchan Aruch was talking in 16th century, that, pop, that translation is very popular in the 16th century. Um, in the 17th century, Yosef Lippenheller tries a uh, right. First of all, he quotes the version that that version of the Rambam. He doesn't have Rav Kafov's translation, obviously. And then he says this actually ter- refers to stirring a pot. That's what he thinks the etymology is. It's not from side; it's from stirring, because liquid turns around in your throat. Okay, uh, right. In the 18th century, the Tzvi Yisrael has a whole new series of new of new uh, of new um, uh, etymologies, of which uh, one says maybe it means Something like yawning. Uh, okay, and he has a he, right, he has a shurish that uh, he, that makes gimel samach relate to uh, relate to yawning, and he gives you the French and the and the German. Why? It's like a person who wants to sleep, who opens it right, who opens his mouth and breathe, right, and breathes in new air, and then goes and pushes it out again and closes his mouth. And that those who are dying also tend, he says, to do something like yawning. But now he says something which I think is the most important thing for our purposes. He says, There are people who are goses, whatever that means, who do not have this sign. They don't. They don't have this um, highly this this um, thing that looks very much like yawning. But nonetheless, but the rabbis chose to mark the 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 category using this term etymologically. Because this etymology fits better his status, because he really wants to sleep forever. So therefore, they use the word they use the word which meant uh, which meant yawning, even though um, even though right even though yawning is not necessarily the right term. Okay, so I think tells you yeah, pretty clearly. I think that's the 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 that the etymological meaning doesn't. Right, doesn't necessarily mean the legal meaning. You can be right. So we don't know what ghosts means, even though right, we have five different etymologies. I don't think any right, some of them relate to the same physiological phenomenon, some of them don't relate to the same physiological phenomenon, narrowness of the chest, uh, secretions, secre- secretions in the throat, um, death rattle, um, yawn, right, um, yawning. They could all relate to similar phenomena, they could relate to different phenomena, not. But none of them are necessarily defining the legal category. They're just an example of the kind of thing that often fits the legal category. Right? So I'm not a uh, I'm not a fan of using the etymology to get us um, to get us very far. Um, right? If you want an analogy, uh, I'm not sure that this is um, 
that this is risque. These days are not, but in old detective novels, right? So it used to refer used to refer to the um, old detective novels. Used to, I'm going to put the um, current in the chat again so for people who are just joining. Uh, so you can open the source sheet yourself. Um, in old detective novels, right? So uh, corpses are often referred to as stiffs. Why are they referred to as stiffs? They're referred to as stiffs presumably because of rigor mortis. Does that mean that, right, that you can't use that term as a detective use that novel? It means that they hold that death doesn't occur until rigor mortis happens? No, of course not, right? It's just a good model for right? It's just a term that creates a uh, creates a category. Um, the same as lunatic, right? It, right, which, you know, because at some point certain kinds of insanity were related, were thought to be related to phases of the moon. It didn't mean that if somebody lived in a cave and never saw the moon, that they could, right, that, they, that you couldn't apply the term lunatic to them. So the term ghosts has all sorts of etymological origins, but those etymological origins are not in any way necessarily related to the um, to the legal meaning. Okay, so let's try and look at um, a certain number of legal contexts. We're on page three of the source sheet now. Um, so Mishnah, the Mishnah in Oholot um, says the following: A person is not mitamei ad nafsho. Okay, so the mitamei right means to convey the ritual, the ritual impurity conveyed by a corpse, which is the super level of ritual impurity. And so a human being does not become a corpse for the purposes of conveying ritual impurity. impurity. Until something called a nefesh, we don't know what a nefesh is, a soul, life force, whatever you want to call it. When the nefesh leaves, then you, then you convey this ritual impurity. Until the nefesh leaves, you don't. Okay, uh, right? That may not... That, the nefesh leaving may not be the same thing as a legal definition of death. I want to be very careful, right? It could have just said, right, that you that right that the um, that you don't convey racial impurity until you die, but it feels compelled to add a definition beyond death. Um, okay, so a person is not metame until it should taste enough show. The filu miguyad, so miguyad is some kind of uh, really serious physical injury. Um, which uh, we'll see right, is presum presumptively not survivable, and but well, not, not necessarily inevitably. The aphilogosis. Okay, so now we know what a gosis is for the purposes of Tuma. A gosis is somebody whose soul has not yet, or whose nefesh has not yet departed. Okay, that's very helpful. Um, but right, um, And presumably it's somebody whom we have strong anticipation that their nefesh will soon depart, but has not yet. Okay. That gives us something. Okay, now, uh, right, so it sounds like a ghost is not dead. But let's take a look at the next mission. This is the mission of Masechet Arachin. Arachin is the Masechet that deals with the case if you pledge if you pledge somebody else's value to um, to the temple, that can be done either by pledging their objective value as listed in the Torah or their actual value. Um, the terms for the first is the, the actual value uh, is neder and the term for objective value, whatever that means, is ne'erach. So here we have a two, two uh, category of two kinds of people: a goses and somebody who's go, who is being brought out to execution. So such people are not subject to these categories. Rabbi Hani ben Akavia says that's not true, right? That they still have objective value. They don't. They don't have. Or they don't have subjective value, but they are still. Living human beings, and so the Torah says that if you that if you pledge the erech of a living human being, well, these are living human beings. Who who cares that they're about to be executed? Okay, um, right. So that you have fundamental dispute about whether, for these purposes, the ghost is considered to be already dead in some sense, 
like a person being carried out being carried out for execution or still alive. Now, what is that? Where did that idea come from? So the Gemara tells you something which I think is going to be very valuable to us. Um, so right, the Gemara in Arachin Daf uh, Daf Dalad, I think should say what Aleph. I apologize. I believe it should say Aleph. If I don't get it wrong, uh, so it quotes a verse, and the verse it takes the verse out of uh, right out of context in ways that don't matter to us, but it tells you that um, that the this thing called an Erech is relates to Nifashot. So therefore, Nifashot excludes the dead. You can't talk about the objective value of the dead. So the Gemara says, okay, according to the according to at least the first position that says uh, this is uh, right. This is where the controversy comes in, right? So when we say the dead, does the dead include the ghosts? We say you have a nefesh. Does that include the ghosts or exclude the ghosts? So it brings a, um, a textual support to claim that a ghosts is also excluded um, from this category, but it's not clear entirely how. It could be because because there's another thing in the verse which says that the coin has to uh, stand up the person and then evaluate the person. And so if you can't stand up, you can't be evaluated. And somehow that excludes the ghosts. But what we don't know is, does that mean that, oh, a ghosts isn't a nefesh either? Or do we say there's another, right? No, if you if you just had the word nefesh, that would only exclude the dead and the ghosts would still be included. But now I have another thing which also excludes the ghosts. But the simplest meaning of this, the simplest way of understanding this is that ghosts is, I guess, as anthropologists, I guess, say it's a liminal category. Right? It's it's someone on the boundary between life and death, which you can debate every time the category dead comes up. Does it include the ghosts or not? Uh, secondly, in a tr- uh, putting one of my favorite hobby horses for understanding how rabbinic uh, thought works. Whenever you have a single verse that comes to exclude a, a, a single case from a category, you always have to ask yourself, is this what I call a binyan av, which means, is this the single case that teaches us the general rule, right, everywhere else, uh, every, everywhere else that um, the, the category dead comes up with, it also excludes the ghosts, or it also doesn't exclude the ghosts, or is it a chiddush, meaning that we say, ah, the Torah had to tell us here that a ghost is not included in the category of dead because other because ordinarily the ghost says is. Or the Torah had to tell us here the ghost says it is, is included in the category of dead because ordinarily the ghost says isn't. So we have lots of ways in which we can make this uh, on the biblical level, and we're only talking about biblical law here. We have lots of ways in which we can um, which we can make uh, we can we can make it go either way. Either this is a text which teaches us that there's one particular halakha which the ghostes is dead, but everywhere else the ghostes is alive. Or we can say that no, there's one particular halacha for which the ghostes, right, for which the ghostes is not al- is um, is alive, but for all of the purposes it's dead. Or we can right, or we can we can, we can uh, play it out whichever way we want. The ghost, I think, again, for our purposes, the simplest thing is to realize that the ghostes is a boundary category for biblical law. However, there is also a tosefta in uh, Erevin. Uh, this is not quoted in the Talmud, as Professor uh, Rubenstein points out, but I will argue that that is not relevant. Tosefta um, says the following. So here we're talking about a, a specific, a different halacha. The rule in rabbinic law is that if Jews share a uh, share a common sp- uh, a common courtyard on, uh, on Shabbat, and they want to be able to carry from their private houses into the shared courtyard, so you have to do, make what's called an eruv, which is everybody, right? You create a shared community by um, 
by creating a common a common meal, right? There's a certain amount of food that is donated to, that is that is transferred to the joint ownership of the whole community, and that makes the whole community space to be a single thing. So the question is, what happens if there one of the people uh, who has a private who has a private house that includes a share in the courtyard is a gosis? Are they considered to be part of the community such that their non-participation uh, prevents people from treating it as a single space? Okay, the argument could go the other way as well, but let's treat it that way. That they're right. The simplest case question is: Is the gosis uh, is the gosis capable? Uh, is the gosis a problem for those purposes? And conversely, I guess right. Conversely, can the gosis actually be part of the community if they're going to right um, and own and and continue to maintain their ownership? For the purposes of this share. So what the Tosefta says is the Gosis, even though the Gosis cannot live, oser. If the Gosis has not is not given a share in the communal meal, then the right, then nobody can carry. Okay, so now the question is what does mean? So you might think that this means that the Gosis is uh un- is unable to live. And now the relevant time period here is Shabbat. So that you might take this as a statement saying that the definition of a goses is that a goses will never uh, right, will never live more than 24 hours. Um, and nonetheless, the goses is considered to be um, completely alive. Okay, now as stated, this um this the, right now this is dealing with rabbinic law. That's the first issue, right? It's not dealing with biblical law at all. So you could say that the gosis is alive for these purposes, but dead for the purposes of arachin, and live for the purposes of tuma. And there's no contradiction there at all. Um, but the real question I'm interested in is, does afopishenoyacholichiot really mean that a gosis inevitably dies within 24 hours? So this halacha, uh, even though it's not quoted by the Talmud Bavli, is quoted by Maimonides. Um, right, this uh, word for word, the tour, um, right, the um, Rav Yaakov Ben Arash, um, right, this, the, which we start the codifying process following the right, quotes Maimonides, um, the Shulchan Aruch, Rav Yasef Karo quotes, right, doesn't even say this is just Maimonides' position, he, right, he says he quotes it as his position. Okay, but let's watch the Magin Avraham, Rabbi Avraham Gambiner, one of the early comments Shulchan Aruch says the following, um, right, that the, the, the Gosses prevents. Um, the community from for, right from forming to be able to carry you, you, and if he dies on Shabbat, he also makes it uh, makes it makes you prohibited. He says an interesting claim. He says that I think I'm getting this right. He says that even if you included the goses in advance, if the goses dies on Shabbat, now you can't carry anymore because it turned out that your community couldn't survive. Right from was known ab initio not to be able to to survive Shabbat, so it's not a real community. They're kind of stuck with the ghosts, right? You have to include him, but if he dies after you included him, that messes you up anyway. I think I'm getting that right. Um, the, pur- the purpose here is not to get that right though right now. What I want to get out of it is this line. He says, why is this so? The row of ghosts Lamisa. So he says, because most ghosts die. Now, hang on a sec. Everybody quoted the language, right? Everybody he's, he's commenting on, starting with the Tosefta, quotes this line, he can't live at all. So the Magen Avram thinks that there is no contradiction between the statement cannot live and the statement most die. 
Right? As opposed to Professor Rubenstein, who said that those positions are in conf intrinsic conflict. If you say Rebbeich says inevitably die within three days, you're contradicting any position which says most ghosts him die. The Megan Abraham says no, right? They mean the same thing because it right because we say that they can't live. What they mean is they probably can't live. Okay. Now, just to show you how complicated this gets, right? So now the Bira Halacha. This is uh, the author of the of the Mishnah Berurah, Rishel Kagan. Right says, but some people argue about this, and they think that there's proof that even if he dies on Shabbat, that's not an issue. Um, and right, and some people, right, and there's a whole dispute back and forth. And here's his line. He says, uh, right, so some people think you should be strict about this. Some people think you should be lenient about this. The answer is So the bottom line is that you can rely on this only if you have to. So, is he really going to die? Is he really not going to die? The answer is he's probably. The answer is. If you have no other choice, you can rely on the idea that he's probably going to die. And that means the same thing as he was inevitably going to die. Okay, so the concept of certainty has to be um, defined for every legal context and for every level of law. Um, and statements, statements that imply certainty and statements that imply majority don't, right, don't contradict each other unless somebody explicitly puts them in dialogue with each other and tries to make them mean different things. Okay, so what do we know so far? We know that in the context of um, the context of Tuma, the Goses is alive. In the context of Arachin, of value, the Goses might be alive. And in the context of Erevin, the uh, Goses is, it's disputed whether the Goses is alive. Really, it was by Arachin also, uh, right? We don't know, right? And the it could be the law is different by Deoraita and Derabanans. It could be the different the law is different uh, ab initio and when you're stuck in a situation after the fact. Right? All those in all those situations, the degree of certainty with which a ghost dies, and so far the only category we've seen is one day. We haven't talked about longer than one day. Is um, right is subject is subject to great controversy. And nobody has mentioned anything, of course, about the question of withdrawing treatment, which is the fundamental ethical question we're addressing. Right? We have three contexts so far. Nobody's talked about. Uh, nobody's for talked about either mourning or uh, or right or the category that matters to us, which is withdrawal of treatment. Okay, let's do some other uh, halachic contexts that uh, show up, which will complicate our categories of life and death uh, much more. So now we're on page four. Uh, the Gemara Sanhedrin says the following: They asked the question to Rav Sheshe, uh, "Is a child allowed to become an agent of the courts?" Um, when a court sentences their father to, or, or par their parent, to be uh, struck or cursed. So Roshesha says, hang on a sec. There's a pro, right? It's true that children have a special prohibition against striking or cursing their parents, but all human beings are forbidden to strike or, or curse each other. So if you say that being a court agent doesn't give you the right to strike your father in that context, then it shouldn't give anybody the right, and all court punishments should be impossible. So the answer must be that just like the right, the, the dignity of heaven, which is expressed in the court sentence, overrides the obligation of human dignity, so too it overrides the obligation of of the parental dignity. So he doesn't think the question is a good question at all. Now the Gemara raises an issue about this. The Gemara says the following. What happens if the son is not an agent? The father, right? Let's suppose a parent, is, God forbid, is being taken out for execution, and the child just comes along and strikes or curses them 
as part of the mob. So it says, right, so it's, it's so that the, there's a bright that says that the son is liable for doing that, but somebody else is not liable for doing that. So it turns out there's a difference between the son and somebody else. And we asked over there, what's the difference between the son and somebody else? And Achista says, well, we're ser- they're, they're serving a purpose because he's refusing to go to the execution, uh, right, to the execution um, uh, chamber. Just so the key, when I'm doing Talmudic text, I underline a text from the Memoric period, and I, and I bold text from the uh, from the, from the uh, Tanaitic period. Okay, so the answer was, so how does Rav Sheshis maintain his claim that it doesn't make a difference? The answer is, he disagrees with Rav Sheshis' claim that we're talking about when the constructive purpose is being served. So the Gemara says, okay, um, so if no constructive purpose is being served by uh, by striking or cursing the convicted, uh, the, the, the person who's going to be executed, then why is it legal for anybody to uh, right to strike? Right, forget the sun. Right, nobody should be allowed to do it. We're back to our original question. So the Gemara gives us fascinating answer. It says, "Acher gavra katilahu." No, for the right, it's regard to people who are not to people other than the children, people who have no special obligation. The the person who is being taken out to die is already dead. Gavra katilahu. So there are people who are alive. Right, but they certainly have a nefesh in them. But for certain purposes, they're legally dead. It seems like they do not have certain kinds of human dignity. Let's point out that once they're dead, there's going to be an obligation to bury them because of their, their dignity. So you can't even claim that for all purposes of dignity, all that right, they're right. But while they're alive, their immunity to physical violence or verbal violence. Is right uh, is right on the grounds of dignity is removed. So here we have a whole new category halachically of people who are legally dead, even though they are physically alive, and nobody disputes their physical life. Uh, side thing, um, the Rav Chaim Soloveitchik, the Rav Chaim of Brist, the the, the uh, uh, early twentieth century figure, held that in fact the only reason that you can ever ex- that a court could theoretically execute anybody is because courts can't murder is they have to kill them first by declaring them by ex- by sentencing them sentencing them makes them legally dead and now it's okay to physically kill them uh, right but you couldn't actually but a court couldn't actually kill a live person uh, okay right interesting interesting claim so you think if you can decide if you think that solves the moral problem uh solve the moral problem um or uh um or not Okay. Yes, Professor Stadlin, you're entirely right. The Kabbat might be different, but we'll get there. We'll uh, right, we'll get there. Uh, okay. So I want to introduce this category of Gavra Katila. Okay. Now the problem with this category of Gavra Katila is you might say, okay, so why is he? Why is this person dead? He's dead because he's about to die. And so they're right. We're doing the quantitative measure, right? People who are about to die are as if they're dead. The problem with that is that we have a category, right? Uh, the classic category for life saving halachically. Is are you allowed to if, if somebody's in a in, uh, is in a collapsed ruin on Shabbat, and un, right and rescuing them will involve will entail violations of Shabbat. Are you allowed to violate Shabbat violate Shabbat to save them? Um, so there's a Mishnah which says that if you're digging through the rubble and you find somebody alive, then you're allowed to keep on digging out the rubble to save right. But if they're already dead, you can't. The Gemara says, duh, right? Why can't right? Of course you can. Of course you can. Um, of course, you can save them if they're alive on Shabbat. You wouldn't have been able. The whole reason you started digging is that you're allowed to save people who are alive on Shabbat. So why should you stop just because you found them? They're alive. 
So the Gemara answers is, Lo, tzricha, no, we have to say the fish is necessary. Because even if the person will only survive which right literally means the life of an hour, uh, right, life of a moment, right? There's no halachically, I think it's not controversial that there is no lower limit on You can violate Shabbat to save anybody who's going to survive even an instant longer because you are trying to save them with your efforts. So now hang on a sec. How can somebody be a Gavra Katila, so they're right, they're dead because they're about to die, when you can violate Shabbat to save anybody for right to save anybody for even a moment of life? So it can't be quantitative. Um, okay, we're gonna complicate it further. Because right, that case itself, right? You might say, oh, the difference is the, the difference between um human dignity and digging people out of uh, out of rubble on Shabbat, but Rashi says no. Because Rashi says we have another interesting case. The interesting case is uh, the Torah says that if somebody um, enters into your, your house furtively, it's called a Baba Machteret, somebody who enters via a tunnel with, uh, with, with malicious intent. So you're allowed to kill them um, uh, proactively, right? You don't have to wait for them to attack you. You can kill them proactively. And there's a whole debate, right? Whether that's an unclean hands doctrine, not our issue right now. So the question is, what happens if somebody is trying to enter your right your house furtively via a tunnel on Shabbat, and the tunnel collapses on them on Shabbat? So do you now have an obligation to dig them out on Shabbat to save them? So Rashi makes a fascinating claim, which is based on the Gemara. Says, since the moment when the person entered the tunnel, you could have killed them without advance warning. Uh, right, that right. Therefore, that from the moment he enters the tunnel, he is a gavra katila. He's already dead. So here we see that the category gavra katila, uh, right, a legally dead person, applies to the category of saving people on Shabbat. And yet, people who have only right, people who have only uh, only seconds to live, are not in that category. So there's a category of legal death that is unrelated to life expectation. Okay, um, right, let's take this category now. Now, is there any way in which, right, how does the category Gosses relate to this category of Gavra Katila, right? That's gonna be our, uh, that's gonna be our big issue, so here, right? So here we go. Um, so there's a Brighta, we're on Sanhedrin Duff, uh, 78a, Brighta says the following. If 10 people strike a single person with sticks and the person then dies, whether they strike him simultaneously or sequentially, everybody is, uh, everybody is exempt because Halakha does not permit uh, multiple people to be held liable for the same killing. All right, let's take that as a given. We're not going to debate that now. But whether it's 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 uh, whether it's simultaneous or sequential, Rabbi Huda ben Becerra, however, says that if it's sequential, the last person is liable because because he made the death closer. All right, we could start getting to a whole debate about what kinds of which kind of Aristotelian causes we're talking about, whatever. But that's the fundamental dispute. Right, is if 10 people strike a single person um, sequentially, and the result is the person dies, even though right everybody contributed to the death in some way, um, I, the, the, the dispute is either uh, either nobody is liable for execution, right, um, and or the last person is liable. Rabbi Yochanan says, guess what? Both of them derive, derive both positions of the contraries derive their position from a single verse. What's the verse? Uh, the verse says it went t- the definition of of um, of murder halachically is 
If a person strikes kol nefesh adam, so what is kol? Right, kol means every nefesh adam. So the first position says kol nefesh means ad kol nefesh. You're only liable if you right if you are striking somebody who has their entire nefesh still in their possession. Well, a person who has been struck nine blows by other people, and we can debate whether each of those nine blows had to be independently sufficient to kill. Let's assume that's the easiest way of reading it. Is that it's not that each of those Blows was independently sufficient sufficient to kill, given enough time, uh, right? So the right. So one person says, "Well, if there were nine prior blows that were sufficient, so then the tenth blow really just struck a tenth of an nefesh or something like that, right?" Rabbi Masera says, "No, no. The word kol doesn't mean the entire nefesh. In the verse it means any part of the nefesh. So there's a right. There's a um, a semantic ambiguity whether whether kol nefesh adam means any nefesh." Any, any nefesh or the entire nefesh of a person. So that you can see that that's going to relate to, oh, right, guess what? Every other time I use the word nefesh or adam, right? Which way does it mean? Does it mean only the entire nefesh? Or does it mean any amount of a nefesh? Right? And that controversy, you know, the, the easiest way, way this comes up is this is also the verse apparently that for Jews excludes abortion from the death penalty. Uh, right, because right, because it's not cold, right? But the question is, and how does it exclude it? Because either because it's not a nefesh at all, or because it's not a full nefesh. All right, you can you can play that. You can play out the uh, the issue the issues as you will. Okay, that's right. So just realize that this is part of a general question again about right, when you when you say that the that this person has been struck by nine previous people, you're not liable for killing them. You're either setting up a paradigm that because they're not alive for any purposes, or you're setting up an exception, a paradigm that I call a binav, or you're setting up an exception that I call the chidush, that um, they're alive for all purposes but this. Okay, now Rava, the Amora, comes along and says, uh, this, right, this whole dispute about whether the tenth person is liable or not, well, that doesn't apply if you, right, if the, um, that, well, that has implications. Everybody agrees that if you kill a person who is considered a trefa, that you're a patur. And if you consider a person who is considered a goseis bidei shamayim, you're liable. And the only dispute is about a goseis bidei adam. So this is rich territory, because first of all, it tells us who knew there are two kinds of goseis. Right? There's a goseis at the hands of heaven, and there's a goseis at the hands of human beings. Now, if goseis refers to a single physical condition, death rattle, how can there be two kinds of goseis with different with different results? So it could be that. It's the same physiological condition with different kinds of legal consequences. It could be we're really talking about two completely different physical conditions. It could be that the physical condition is just a diagnostic, and it depends, right, and, and what the diagnostic means to us, what the prognosis is, depends on, on background information about, uh, right, about, about knowledge, right? For example, I think we had the whole controversy about um, brain death and hypothermia. Right, where the exact same present circumstances might mean something different depending on what right, depending on what you know about the about the clinical history. Okay, I'll leave Professor Stadlan to tell me if I'm wrong about that later. Uh, or tell every all of you that I'm wrong now on the chat. Uh, okay. But here's what Rava says. Everybody agrees that when you kill a trefa, you're a patur. Now, what's a trefa? A trefa is somebody um, we're gonna right, who has in a physical injury to a vital organ that Halakhically is presumed will eventually kill them. Let's say, if you want for me to say that it will kill them within a year. Everybody agrees that if you kill a trefa, which is somebody, let's let's say, who has a injury to a specific organ that will kill them within a year, 
That's not murder. However, if you kill the goseis bidei shamayim, which is our conventional goseis, right? The goseis who right, who does not nobody nobody but God has done anything to them. Everybody agrees that that is murder. Now that's a little bit striking because if a um, if a uh, ghost, no pun intended, but if a ghost, if a um, if a ghost says is going to die within 24 hours, inevitably, even 72 hours, inevitably. So how can a ghost says be more alive than a trefa who has a year? Nonetheless, the right the halacha, Eretz says is undisputed and remains undisputed pretty much. Um, Maybe, maybe I guess, maybe, maybe there's a certain amount of dispute, but the dispute is practical, not theoretical. It says that killing the trefa is definitely not a capital crime, whereas killing a goseis bidishvayim is. And the dispute is about somebody who reaches the condition called goseis, or is legally right, uh, or somebody who just is what we call the goseis bide adam, um, somebody who's who's who has been struck in such a way as to cause this, because one person thinks that a goseis bide adam is just like a trefa. And some people think that Goseis Adam is just like a Goseis at the hands of heaven. All right, what's the dispute? So the answer is on the one hand, a Goseis Mayim, nothing happened to them, and this person something happened to them. So how can you call them the same thing? So we could try and figure out whether that means that there's fundamentally something ontological, uh, right, or prognostic, right, or just prognostic, or whether it's just a legal technicality here that if somebody else did something, so then if we held you liable, we would really be, we're, right, we're really assigning liability for having done something less than 100 percent and it's the existence of the other it's not the there's nothing different about the ghost ace there's something different it's something unique to the liability that means that if the ghost ace but adam cannot be um right can you can't can't be a capital crime for killing the other person says no right they can't be a trefa because a trefa is somebody who the example they give is somebody who has either the esophagus or the trachea cut uh, but a trachea is somebody who has a specific injury and a ghost is somebody who does not have a specific injury. Okay, so this is really interesting, right? So what right, you know, so Rashi tells you very clearly, right? As you would expect. What's the issue about a trefa? The issue of a trefa is that a trefa is a gavra katila. Okay, so now we have a whole bunch of cases in which we have this category called legally dead. The category legally dead um, deprives some people of Dignity, dignity rights to protect them against violence. The category, the category legally dead, deprives uh, deprives some people of the uh, right. Deprives some people. Deprives. Dep, uh, de, takes away your obligation to save people, and the obligation legally dead takes away your liability for killing them. But that category is not the ghosts, at least not the ghosts bidei which is what we're mostly we're mostly concerned about, right? That category is not included, right? So whether what a ghost is, whatever a ghost is, it doesn't seem to be a function of imminent death because, right, there are people, the ghost is more imminently dead than. And yet they are legally dead and the ghost is not. Okay, or at least the ghost in the hands of heaven is not. And the ghost at the hands of human beings is a, right, is a, uh, is a, is a, is a controversy. We'll have to figure out how we, how we, right, what, to what degree we want to fill out those categories, we really want to say, in certain cases, let's say, right, is it at all to start talking about our own ethical tuition? Do we really believe that, absent a difference in prognosis, that we would suggest that protocols for for life sustaining treatment should be different depending on whether a person's uh, a person's medical condition is the product of a disease or the product of violence? 
right? That's probably ethically inconceivable nowadays. And so therefore the distinction between B'day Shemayim and B'day Adam is not gonna, is not going to function very well um, for us at all. Okay. Um, so, right, we don't have any definite, right, right? This only gives a, a negative definition of a ghost phase, right? A ghost phase is not legally dead for these purposes. And it's not, and whatever the ghost phase is, it doesn't have to relate to imminent death. But I have to go back and say, okay, well, hang on a sec, but by Shabbat, it did very much seem to relate to imminent death. So maybe the meaning of ghost phase is different in different categories. Maybe that's because that's rabbinic law and this is typical law. Maybe because the term just means wholly different things in different contexts. Maybe there it's talking about an ordinary language meaning, and here we're talking about a legal meaning, for example. Okay, moving on. Um, so in the Shita Mekubetzet, we have Rav Yosef Ibn Migash, right? This is the teacher of the Ramos' father, and he explains this halacha, and he, here's how he explains it. Zamuka, um, this person, right, the, per, the, the person who's been struck by nine other people before the tenth person strikes them, we're on page five now. He didn't have one of the 18 specific physical conditions that put you legally in the category of a trefos. And he is generally healthy. So he's generally healthy. What, right, what is he? But he's sick in that he has been weakened by those nine prior strikes. So he's like a gosis. I was trying to figure out whatever you like the term ki in in halachic language in halachic language is very very tricky. Uh, sometimes it means just like, exactly the same as it's an identity term, and sometimes it means like but not quite. Uh, right? There actually is uh, an essay somewhere, uh, somebody, some some rabbinic figure I forget who has a long essay explaining right ex- trying to define when you can say which 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 time the comparative chaf means one and not the other. But you pretty much have to read it from context. Okay, so what he says, the Even though he's been struck nine times, all his organs and limbs have been saved from any of the occurrences that would make you call somebody a trefa. So what's the problem? But his nefesh is sick. It's not his body. His body is not damaged in that kind of way, but his nefesh is damaged. And he's going to he's going to be sick until he dies but since all his organs do not right are not are not trefut, just because his nefesh is weak he's going to be called alive until he's going to be called alive until he's dead so he's like a gosis and he's going to be right but because there's no physiological condition he's going to be called alive until he's dead just like the gosis but it's entirely possible, it's entirely possible that his nefesh will be healed and he'll live for many years. As opposed to somebody who has the 18th trefot, even though he's walking around, he's not looking terribly weak, he's, he's as if he's dead. Because he could not possibly live, and he will never be healed. So this is a very complicated text. Um, what matters for our purposes really is not that complicated though. I think it's pretty clear that when he says kigosis here, all he means is similarity and not identity. Right? He says that the, the gosis is defined as somebody um, who right, as somebody who has no specific physiological injury, but is very weak and is going to die. So to this person, right, they have a physical injury, they don't have a they don't have a um, they don't have a uh, they don't have a specific um, 
They don't have a specific. Um, they don't have a specific uh, injury, but they're but but they're physically weak. Now, this kind of person who has the kind of uh, physical physical in, of um, who has, the, has who has the weak this kind of generalized weakness as the result of physical violence, this kind of person can recover. A trefa can't recover, and. You know what? Maybe a maybe like a ghost espidation maya. Maybe somebody who has this general weakness, not because of, uh, right, not because not because of violence, but because of age or illness. Maybe they can recover. Maybe they can't. Right. So all I want to point out of this text is that whereas Professor Rubenstein argues that here you have a uh, here you have a text which says explicitly that the ghosts can live. It's perfectly reasonable. No, you have a text which says that the ghosts be de adam. Right. Can probably right right that the but the ghosts that are held of violence can live. We don't know any. We don't know what it would say about the uh, about the ghosts about the ghosts at the hands of heaven, um, um, or not, or not. Okay, so we still have very, very little um, evidence at all. Uh, we're on page six of the Makarishi, which I put in the chat again for uh, people who just joined. Okay, so we're trying to figure out right what is the ghost says. So right now we have uh, right, we don't we don't all we know is that the ghost says is not legally dead for some um, for the purposes of life saving or uh, or killing. Uh, might be legally dead for the purpose of evaluating uh, objective object, uh, objective arachin is um, not legally dead according to most for the purposes of uh, of Erevin on Shabbat. Okay, this is that's the end of the uh, Talmudic evidence, and the answer and result really is that we know all we don't we really don't have any definition at all from the Talmud. Um, we just have all we have is a legal claim that the ghost says for most purposes is not dead, even though other people whose death is less imminent are dead. Okay, now we get to the Gaonic evidence. I'm taking the, the word of the uh, the scholars in the subject that the texts we're reading now are um, are uh, Gaonic compilations of Bright Toad uh, and not uh, Tanitic. So we have a text that appears in uh, in a bunch of different versions, and I'm going to go on a little bit of a hobby horse now, so just be aware. I'm going to teach you something that is my uh, my idiosyncratic position. Uh, of course, after I convince you all, it will be your idiosyncratic position as well, and then it will sweep to the world. It's not immediately relevant to our topic, um, but A, I have the indulgence of being the host, and B, I think it will in some ways cast light on the material um, we're doing. So here we go. In this collection called Evil, Bre uh, Evil Rabati, it tells you the opening sentence really important. The ghost says, is alive for all his matters. Um, I will see in a moment that the other version of this text says the ghost is alive for all matters. So you decide which right are those texts saying different things, and right is there a category called his matters which is different than all matters? And if you think they're saying the same thing, which meaning is controlling? Does it only mean for the matter for the right for the those matters relative to relevant relevant to a ghost face, or does it mean really for all halachic matters? Um, right, we've already seen that the ghost the ghost is, is not necessarily alive for all halachic matters because he might not be alive for the purpose of arachin. Um, so you have to decide if this text is in any way controversial or not. In the context of the first version, right, I, which says devarav, which means his matters, in fact, it's then followed with a list, and that list is entirely about his matters. It gives you a list of things you can't do to the ghosts. You can't tie his tongue, you can't tie his cheeks up, you can't anoint him, you can't do all these things. Now, what are all these things you can't do? The answer is all these things are the things that you do to corpses in order to prepare them for burial. So the ghost says 
is alive for all his matters, meaning the gosis is, all right, you cannot do any of the things to a gosis that you would do to a corpse. Okay, why not? So we have a last, a last statement here which says, you also can't close his eyes. You're going to see that it's pretty funny how, how many different ways you can spell this word. Ma'atzmin, ma'amsin, alas, ayans, different orders and all that, but they all mean close the eyes. Um, until achetetse nafsho. So we all remember that phrase, achetetse nafsho. Uh, right? We had that phrase uh, about tuma. Right? The gosis right? doesn't convey ritual impurity until the nefesh leaves. So here too, the gosis is alive for all these purposes, you can't start burying him until his nefesh leaves. And anybody who closes the eyes, um, even at the moment of Yitzhiat Neshama, even at the last moment, so this is a version of, it might not be homicide, it might be manslaughter, that's the whole debate. Um, but that's really because you can't tell, right? Because you're closing at the very last moment. You can't tell whether if you close the Gosei's eyes, if you're what killed the Gosei's, or whether the Gosei's was dying at that moment anyway, because you're trying to you're trying to nail it exactly. Um, okay, so the rule is you can't do anything to a ghost face that would that is the same thing you would do to a corpse, and you can't try to close the eyes of the of the ghost face at the very last moment, the moment the neshama leaves. For whatever reason you might do that, that's not my issue right now. And if you do that, you're considered to be a bloodshedder, right? Then we have a metaphor. The metaphor is the ghost face is like a right closing the eyes of the ghost face is similar to a a lamp that is that is um, guttering, a person puts their right, puts their finger on the wick and it immediately goes out. Okay, so if you close the eyes of the gosses, that's like putting your finger on the wick of a guttering candle and that's forbidden as killings. The gosses is alive. Okay, but we're on a bit of a tangent now. The second version of this text says the gosses is alive for all for all matters, not just for um, not just for the purposes of his matters, and it starts with a list of other matters from a different Mishnah, which says that a goses um, is considered alive for the purposes of levirate marriage. Um, all right, so let's say if 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 uh, a if a husband dies while right, and they have a child who is a goses, so is the is the wife in the condition of Yibam with the brother-in-law or not? The answer is. Even if they're even if their only surviving child is a gosis, a gosis is alive and the wife is and the wife is exempt, or vice versa. And also as to whether you're considered to be uh right, if if the wife can eat truma if her husband is a coin, even while the husband the coin husband is a gosis, and for purpose of inheritance, if um right, if you happen to make sort of you know a a sort of a grotesquerie, if you happen to right, if you chop if you chop uh, you know a, a slice a steak off the gosis, so that's every bit of high. Um, right, that's eating. That's eating flesh of a live thing. Right, so the ghost is alive for all matters, and then it goes into this whole thing about all right for, for all purposes. Right, so this statement is this text that the ghost is, is really alive for all purposes. Okay, and then it's it, right. A it gives you all the positive legal purposes which a ghost is alive. Well, it leaves out tuma, interestingly enough, and then it gives you all the things you can't do. But here it has a new list. There's a new list of things you can't do, which is not on the above list. It says you can't move him. In mezizinoto. Okay, until he dies, right? There's a there's a chorus here, right? You can't, right? These are the, the positive things that you can do until he's dead. You can't do this until he's dead. You can't do this until he's dead. And then it gets, you can't close his eyes. And then it adds something new. And if you touch him and move him, you're a bloodshedder. Okay, so whereas in the above text, the only thing that was bloodshedding was closing the eyes. 
In this text, touching him and moving him makes him a shofech damim. And then we have our mashal. Um, and the mashal says that just like if you touch the, the lamp, it goes out. So too, if you close the eyes of the goses, it's as if you pushed aside their neshama. So here, the metaphor still relates to eye closing. But there's a new idea here, which is that it's bloodshedding not just because you closed the eyes. It's not unique to the eyes. It's bloodshedding because you touched him and moved him. Okay, now where did this idea that if you touch and if you touch and move a goses, that's murder. Where did that idea come from? So it could be that it follows if you right. What's wrong with closing the eyes of a goses? You touched and moved him. So it's just an example. But there's another possibility which I want to suggest, which is that we have a mission in Shabbat. Mission Shabbat says right gives you a list of the things that you're allowed to do in order to prepare a corpse for burial on Shabbat. Okay, now that list includes a bunch of interesting things, but the most important one it says is, You cannot move the, the dead body. Why can't you move the dead body? Because it's muksa. Right? You're not allowed to move right, objects that have no use on Shabbat. And so you can't move the you can't move the um the, the corpse on Shabbat. You also, by the way, you can't uh, say what you can do is you can take a pillow out from underneath and put it on somewhere which will be less likely to lead to, compos uh, to composition. Okay, and the last thing it says is, you can't close the eyes of the dead on Shabbat, or on a weekday at the exact moment of death, because that's bloodshedding. So, um, right now, if you look in the if you look in the, in the, in the Babylonian Talmud, you'll see that it quotes the, this rule, just this last rule about you can't close the eyes of the dead, and then it says, and then it brings this, this um, this metaphor of the candle. So here's what I think happened. I think you had two separate lists. There was a list of things that you can't do to the um, you can't do to the uh, to the to uh, um, even though you would do them to a corpse. And there's a list of things that you can't that you can't do to a corpse on Shabbat. Now those lists are obviously very connected, and what happens over time is items move from one list to the other. So originally, right, the original list of things that you can't do to a goses never said anything about touching or moving. But because moving is one of the things, it's in the list of things you can't do on Shabbat, and those lists are almost all parallel, so the idea of touching migrated from the list of things you can't do on Shabbat to the list of things you can't do to a goses. Now we're going to watch this expand. So now we have the right because the original version, the version that we have of this text only says if you touch him and move him. Um, and, but we already saw that the metaphor of the flickering candle. Now you understand that there's right that um, that closing the eyes is right is right. It's very easy to see that as a metaphor about taking the light out of the person. Um, so it's very easy to see how a metaphor about putting a finger on a lamp can relate specifically to closing the eyes, but then. You can watch as the as the, the notion of moving it become, moves into the other list. So now, hang on a sec. We saw we talked about putting your finger on the lamp. Well, that be, can become a metaphor for touching at all. So the metaphor, right? So the one object moves onto the list, and now the meaning of the metaphor shifts, and the, the metaphor becomes a shift uh, becomes a uh, becomes a um, a metaphor for a metaphor for touching, and not just a metaphor for closing the eyes. And it's more than that. That because what what's the metaphor by the lamp? The metaphor of the lamp is just putting the finger on it. You don't move anything. 
So as opposed to the original version, the original first version of the shift, which talks about right where the lamp says, Kevan, right, where the what you do to the the thing you can't do to the Gosses is to touch him umezizo and to move him. But the lamp metaphor just says when you touch him. So it's gonna we're gonna develop versions of the text which say that which leave out himezizo, which is the line you which, which is moved, which is derived from the list of um, the list of things you can't do on Shabbat. And it's going to become the point you can't touch a gosace at all. Okay, and that line shows up right in the uh, right in the Balhalachal Gdolo, the Erlegonic text. It shows up in the Rif, Anogeabo, right? Anybody who touches a gosace is a bloodshedder. It shows up in Ashkenaz in the Sidur of Rashi. Um, and the original version, you might think, has very little survival. There's a, an Ashkenazi work called the Sefer Niyar, which instead of having uh, Nogeabo, has Mezizbo Ever, has moved something of him. So that's a right. That's a pretty clear uh, list that it doesn't talk about touching. The Maram Ami uh, has an still has an Ogeabo umazizo, um, and still has the metaphor relating to the to the lamp and not to the um, and not to touch not to touching and moving. And there is Gaius and another a, a Spanish early text um, doesn't have anything about touching or moving at all. But the Rambam has Vanogeabo uh, touching. Uh, even though, right, um, and he has the metaphor applying to that. So you would think, right, and so does the so does the rush. So you would think, under ordinary halacha, that we have a we have a halacha that you simply cannot touch a gosis. Now this halacha has interesting implications for a couple of things. Uh, one 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 place it has implications is uh, in the category of withdrawing treatment. So for certain under certain um, under certain protocols for uh, right, for withdrawal treatment, you have to engage in certain kind of tests to determine whether the person is actually in that category. In order to engage in those tests, you have to touch the person. But if they're a ghost you can't touch them. So expanding the definition of ghost actually, right? So right, so saying you can't touch a ghost the more you expand the definition of ghost so you might allow more withdrawal treatment, but you're also going to prevent the tests that allow you to withdraw treatment. You're going to prevent being, engaging in all sorts of treatments. So it's very dangerous if this were true. To expand the category of gosis, and it sounds like the category of gosis is uh, like there's no debate. You can't touch a gosis, right? All the primary sources seem to say that. I found a few exceptions, which you know, suggest, and I have a historical theory that uh, originally there was no prohibition against touching a gosis. It was maximally against moving a gosis, and maybe not even that. Probably the original prohibition was only against closing the eyes of a gosis, which has to do with the notion about the eyes being the window of the soul. So, what do we do halachically? Okay, well, it turns out, interestingly enough, that the codes after right, the tour doesn't say anything about touching. He just says, don't close the eyes. And his metaphor, and right, and the metaphor relates to uh, right, relates entirely, relates entirely to um, closing the eyes. The bait you safe says exactly the same. Um, and the uh, right and the Shulchan Aruch. Um, right, did I quote the Shulchan, I have the Shulchan Aruch here? I should have. Uh, Shulchan Aruch will do the same thing. So it's an interesting thing that um, even though you would expect, based on all the prior texts we have, you would expect the prohibition against touching a ghostface to be codified, actually it isn't. Uh, right? Th- that the standard codes do not have it. Do not have it. And now you can say because like we don't have actual the actual texts of all the prior figures. Nobody ever tells us halachically that they're building something off what I believe to be the mistaken later texts. They just, right, they just quote it as is. 
And so maybe at the very least, what they mean by touching is touching and moving. And so therefore, I, I am willing to Paskin, although I think you know, it's idiosyncratic, now you can decide to share it, that there is actually no prohibition whatsoever against touching a ghost face. It's just a mistake. Um, and I think that the, the Torah and the Shulchan Aruch preserve the original text. Uh, and we're, um, and, and it's, you know, and that we have earlier versions of the text that record the error it doesn't mean that anyone ever took the, ever took that metaphor with profound seriousness. Okay, that's my tangent, but you'll see why, you'll see why it matters, um, hopefully fairly shortly. Okay, now at the end of these discussions of what you can't do with the ghost, what you can and can't do with the ghost says, the Torah throws in something else at all. Right? After the Torah says you can't do any of these things to a ghost face that would treat them as if they're dead, he then throws in a line. He says, and the Marami Rotenberg, right, as the great Ashkenazi figure says, When we say that a ghost face is perfectly alive for all purposes, that's only a ghost face who is present in front of us. But, but if you tell somebody, we saw your brother or, or your son, ghost face, Hayom Gimel Yamim. Let's figure what that phrase means. Today, three days. Then such a person is presumptively dead, and you're allowed to, and you're obligated to mourn them. That's an interesting claim, right? That just because a ghost says in, a ghost says in front of us is legally categorized as alive, but a ghost, but somebody who was a ghost says at a certain point, at a certain point, that person becomes presumptively dead. And you can act as if they're dead. Right now, we saw that in terms of Shabbat, right? We saw that the issue, right? That the right there really they're going to be three kinds of issues. The ghosts in front of us, are they alive or dead? The ghosts in front of us, do we assume they're going to die over Shabbat, say? And the ghosts not in front of us, do we assume they're already dead? At what point? Okay, right. And Jim's right about right that you know that the ghosts gives you another another. Uh, Another issue, right? You know, taking care of the ghosts, right? That's why this notion you can't touch a ghost says, if you held it, you'd have to believe that a ghost says, you have to believe that the ghost says, is the very last second. Right? It's undual, right? And that's and so you have to claim the definition of ghost says for that purpose is different than the definition of ghost says everywhere else. And we'll see that that's I think probably what Ravasha Feinstein tries to do. Uh, right, in, in a very, very elaborate and fancy way. But people have to be aware, right, that you know, unless you accept my idiosyncratic position. That expanding the definition of ghosts is potentially a very dangerous thing. Okay, um, so Rami Ruttenberg says that there's a that there is a kind of ghosts, right? There's the ghosts who has been observed to be ghosts hayom gimel yamim, who is treated as presumptively dead to the point that you mourn them. You mourn them, even though if they then showed up alive, you would say, "Oh, you're alive." Okay, the Beis Yosef quotes the same Maram, and he says, "Bekasav Marami Ruttenberg." is only right he's, he's quoting the tour and he says guess what the rush wrote the same thing and the mordechai wrote the same thing in the name right in the name of the um in the name of the uh of the uh, maram and he quotes a great a line which says and they brought a proof because it says in Perakola get the rove goes in lemisa okay so they held that the way, reason you can treat a person as presumptively dead is because most goes him die they don't see any any need to claim that all ghosts him die, right? The Beis Yosef says the way they're legally dead because most ghosts him die, for the purposes of mourning. Right? So again, there's no there's no reason to introduce any notion that you that inevitability and most are in any way in conflict, right? They're both right, just different legal sta stages of 
we're only talking about probabilities that lead to legal certainty, and we'll see that there are different kinds of majorities. But nobody really, maybe Rav Moshe Feinstein at the end, for one narrow purpose, talks about inevitability. Okay. Um, all right, it's the Medica Bayit that doesn't, doesn't matter to me. And I think for our purpose, the Medica just says, right, that you realize that once the person dies, right, so your immediate obligation is to close their eyes. So we understand why people wanted to get it exactly right, why closing the eyes became the became the test case. And that's why, right, because closing the eyes is the thing you try and do exactly at that moment between life and death. So, right, that's what was really on the list of things you, you, that you can't do. Uh, you can't do until they're, um, you have to be really careful, right? And we'll see some people build in a, a 20 minute delay or a 30 minute delay before you can close the eyes. Okay, but here's what really interests us. All right, so, so far, so far, we have the definition of Gosei as alive for lots of purposes, maybe not alive for the purpose of Arachin, maybe not alive for the purposes of Shabbat, but mostly the Gosei is perfectly alive. And specifically, right, we saw that the Gosei is not a Gavra Ketila, right? With Rashi distinguished between the Trefa and the Gosei. The Trefa is, a, right, is, is considered legally dead for the purposes of life-saving, right? The, tre- right, the category Gavra Ketila applies that said if somebody... If somebody who is a Gavra Ketila is already dead, is buried on Shabbat, you're not allowed to dig them out. But that, but at Gosses is not a Gavra Ketila. So it seems like one of the things that should be clear that, that about a Gosses is that you have an obligation to save them as long as you can save them. Not only that, we saw, right, that even somebody who's only going to live momentarily, there's an obligation to violate Shabbat to save them. So it seems like there's no space at all from what we have based on the Talmudic and medieval evidence, there's no space at all for any idea that you right that the ghosts can be treated differently than any other human being in terms of withdrawal of treatment. But what's astounding is um, what's astounding what's astounding is I'll copy to the cover that I, I have had doctors tell me that that's that they actually do talk about such that there are patients in such a condition. So that I, I'll leave that as the dispute among medical professionals. So whether there is a condition which is so delicate that touching could lead to that touching could lead to death, you could say, but you could argue circularly. Any patient who is medically evaluated as touching them won't right, touching them won't kill them is not a ghost case, right? But then you can't say that you can't apply other legal definitions of ghost case, right? Right, right. You can't say that there are ghost case for other purposes unless you make the claim that ghost case is an inconsistent category. Okay. Um, so. So far, right, so, so far, there's been no evidence of uh, the, right, the only categories of people whom you have no obligation to save are people who are about to be executed, uh, people who are in tunnels, and maybe, right, dangerously, maybe you might suggest it to a trefo, although we don't actually pass him that way halakhically, because we think the word gavra katila has multiple meanings also. Um, right, just, you know, just because you're legally dead doesn't mean you're legally dead for all purposes. Um, you also can't, uh, you also can't insult or or strike a trefa, right? They have a trefa has the kind of human dignity as a legally dead person that a person going out to be executed doesn't. Right? Every legal every legal term is does not right has unstable meaning across halachic categories. But certainly, right, it sounds like a person who is dying imminently, you're allowed to violate Shabbat to save them. And let's assume for now that anybody whom you can violate Shabbat to save. You also have an obligation to save, and you can't kill. At some point, maybe we'll have another Yom Yuna. I did I did have one uh, a couple months back. We'll have another one on abortion, and we'll see that that's a very controversial issue. There are people who 
take the position that you can violate Shabbat to save a fetus, but you can also abort uh, without uh, without at least biblical violation. But we're going to bracket that question for now because I don't think that's. I don't, well, we may have to re, we may have to reclaim it, um, but let's let's bracket that position for now. For now, all we know is that a goses you have to violate Shabbat to save them. They're not a gavra katila, um, and the only thing right, and the only thing we have now is we have a goses. Um, a goses can be considered presumptively dead if you haven't seen them for three days. But so far as we know, right, everyone seems to agree, including the Maharam, that a goses in our presence is perfectly alive. And we have an obligation to say it. So the interesting thing is that, and we're now on page nine, that the Ramar of Moshe Israelis in his commentary on the Beit Yosef, right? So this is the Ramosh Israelis who becomes the author of the Ashkenazic glasses on the Shulchan Aruch, quotes a fascinating thing here. It says it's written that Al-Fasi, which is something that we call the Shulte Giborim. Uh, that was also an earlier work, I think, which had said something else, and it's very hard to figure out what, what was where. Um, there's a Mishnah which says that if you close Right, that if you close the eyes, we saw that Mishnah and Shabbat, then you're considered to be a bloodshedder. He says, on this basis, near Eles, or it seems that one should forbid, the custom of some people, when a person is goses, right, they're goses, but the neshama cannot leave. Okay, so what do they do? Even though, right, we read, we read, we read in our... Uh, Written our list of things that you can and can't do, uh, right? We read that one of the things you can't do is let's go back to our lists, right? It said, ain't right in our uh, in um, in our list that what you can sorry what you can do for the dead, right? Listen, what you can do for can do for the dead body on Shabbat. It said you can shontina the kar mitachtav. You can, all right. This is one of the things you can do for the dead on Shabbat is you can move the body uh, indirectly so as the way you move any mix of things so that it, it's preserved better. But because everything makes it onto the list, so eventually there will be versions of the list of the things you can't do that include ain't shomtin. I'm sorry, but I'm not. Uh, where is that list? Makes it onto, sorry, it makes it onto the list eventually. I apologize. Okay, sorry. I have to trust me. I'll show you that it made it onto the list. Ain't um, shomtin. I apologize. Um, here we are, right in the tour. It says ain't shomtin akarmi tachtas. Even though the tour. Says very explicitly, you're not allowed to, right, to, to grab the pillow out from underneath the goses. Nonetheless, the Nagimaj says they were, right, that that goes El Fasi, the Shilo Kiborik says there were some people who, in a specific case of goses, right, when the, somebody has goses and the soul can't, we'll call the soul can't leave, they would, in fact, move the, um, the pillow from underneath so that the person would die more rapidly. Because they claim that there are feathers in the pillow that entrap the neshama somehow. And Rav Nassim Ish Agario, apparently is a figure was treated with great respect, said, yeah, that's okay. If you have a ghost, you are allowed to move the pillow, even though the tourist says not. And afterwards, I found, right, I, but afterwards he says, I found a, I found a proof for my position against Rav Nassim Ish Agario. This is the Shilti Gibar I'm speaking. I found that Sefer Chassidah, Sefer Chassidah said the following. If a person is a Goses and they can't die until they until right, they say, I can't die in here, I need you to bring me home, I need you to put me in the other room, you're not allowed to move the Goses in order to enable them to die. Um, but they also say that if somebody is Goses and there's a wood chopper nearby and the wood chopping is preventing the Neshama from leaving, 
you're allowed to remove the woodchopper. But I, the Shilda Giborim says that the Sefer Chasidim, Sefer Chasidim is this um, early Ashkenazi 12th century book, I think this is not a contradiction because obviously to do something, or certainly to do something that will cause a person not to die rapidly is prohibited. You can't do something that will slow down their dying. For example, chopping wood in order to leave the neshama there because loud noises, or putting salt on their tongue so that he'll die more slowly. It's prohibited. Not only are you, are you allowed to do, are you not? Are you um, are you allowed to stop chopping the wood? Right. You're even allowed. Right. It's prohibited to begin chopping the wood. So and everything, anything which is prohibited to start doing, you're allowed to remove. But to do something that will cause him to die faster, that's prohibited, and therefore you can't move the goses. Put him somewhere else. And he also says, right, you also can't put the keys. Uh, so the version we have of the Dark Emotion says of the synagogue. Uh, I think it's actually probably a typo. It's an abbreviation with Bet Hay, and it really meant the keys to the cemetery as opposed to the shul, but that's an unsupported uh, speculative invitation. You can't put the keys under the, the head of the ghost says for him to die faster, because that also causes the soul to leave faster. But you can, um, you can do something that... Um, that delays that sorry you can you can remove something that delays the departure of the soul okay so this becomes a very right this is a a radical new thing um that introduces the idea that there's a kind of goses and there's a kind of thing you can do right you can do things that uh you can remove things that prevent the soul from leaving although you can't do anything that will cause the soul to leave faster now, what on earth do those things mean? It's, you know, this is metaphysics. How are you going to evaluate whether you cause the soul to leave faster, or you, right, or you, or you remove something that caused the right, right? You right, you took the pillow out from underneath. So didn't that just remove the feathers that were causing the soul to be entrapped? No, you put you you pushed it. Right, very very hard to figure out. Um, right, very very hard to figure out. Um, okay, Josh, I'm not up on it. That's a great. That's a that's a cool hop if it's true. Um, so what does this right what does this mean so that for our purposes a key question is going to be does he say this as a generic treatment for the goses meaning that once somebody is a goses then you can do x but not y or does he say it's or is he creating a new category of the goses right there's a goses who has been hanging on too long now the question is how you evaluate too long is how, is too long a time period or is too long some kind of evaluation of it or the other possibility is that it's a diagnostic that there are things you can do and if it turns out that the ghostface dies well that must mean that the soul was having difficulty leaving where there are other things you can't do them because it wouldn't prove anything maybe you killed the ghostface what interests me right now for our purposes is that why is this quoted here Right, this is not right. We are talking here about the laws of mourning. We're not talking here about the laws of what you can, can and can't do to the ghosts. So, what draws right? What drives the Ramah to quote this law about uh, about end of um, about about end of life treatment in the context of a uh, in the context of laws of mourning? So we're going to hold that question for a moment. Right, as we hold all the other questions about the meaning of this statement. So first, we'll go back and see that the, the quote of the Sefer Chassidim should actually be made 
um, much more complicated than that. The Sefer Chassidim says the following. Uh, he says, you can't cause a person to die, to, right, to die faster. Good, that's great. For example, if somebody was a gosais, and there's somebody close to the house who's chopping wood and the neshama is not able to leave, you can remove the wood chopper. And you can't put salt on his tongue to remove him. And if he's right, but you can't move him, right? So that's all right, you can't move. That's all accurate. Um, right? Uh, that's all accurate, except you know, he only deals, he doesn't deal with the general category of the ghosts whose neshama can't leave. He says the ghosts and they're right, and whose whose soul is being prevented from leaving by the wood chopping specifically. Okay. But then the Sefer Nasim throws in one other interesting thing that the Shildagabarim doesn't quote. He says, even though they say that a ghost cannot be moved from his place, if there's a fire, you can't leave the ghost in the house and you take him out. Okay, so now that's a um right, that was already quoted by the Sherry Knesset so nobody should think that I have any kind of bikus that uh, doesn't come from other works. Now that text is really important to me. Because what does that text say? So the Sefer Chassidim holds that there is an, it's prima facie, that there's an obligation to save a Gosis. Right? You, right? you carry him out on Shabbat. But it's possible it's not the meaning of it. It's possible what he says is that even though you're, right, you're, right, you're, not, supposed to, you're not supposed to save the life of a Gosis, because really you're supposed to let the Gosis die um, right, by inaction, but you're not supposed to let him die by being burnt to death. That's a horrible death. Right, so you can bracket it. You can bracket it that way. So one way of reading the Sefer Hasidim is that he utterly undermines this whole thing because he's saying that there is an obligation to save a ghostface. And if there is an obligation to save a ghostface, so then it must be that the claim that you can withdraw the woodchopper applies only to a ghostface whom you know specifically the neshama can't leave. Or it could be that the way you read the is that he's saying that you have an obligation to save him from the fire because, because he's in agonizing pain, even because he's going to die in agonizing pain, even though by moving him, you might kill him. Right. So those are two radically different ways of reading the of reading the Sefer Chassidim. I, I will just say, for the record, um, it doesn't it doesn't matter so much. Well, it matters somewhat for our argument. Uh, I mean, you can read uh, my article on uh, I think it's of, of flickering flames and respirators. I forget. I I will put it in the chat. I forgot people before I leave. Sure, my bad. Put in the chat a uh, a folder which has Professor Rubenstein's article, Rabbi Blythe's article. And my articles on the subjects, you can look at them. Uh, I also have an audio share which you can look at my anchor podcast. It's called Go Face, Go Face Strafe a Zombie, uh, which I argue that there is a technical halachic category called the zombie. Uh, the zombie is somebody who is the category of Inan Neshama and that is not, has nothing to do with the regular category of Ghost Face. We'll see as I try and establish this um, I'm going going on. For our purposes, though, and in evaluating Professor Rubenstein's critique of Rabbi Bleich, to me, it's very, very uh, interesting that the Darke Moshe quotes this halacha of the Shilta Gibor. Now, he's the only one who quotes it, the Shulchan Aruch doesn't, but he quotes this halacha about uh, passive or about certain kinds of circumstances in which you can allow the death of a certain kind of ghosts in the context of mourning. And there's really only one motive for him to do that. And the motive to do that is because this is, I think, well, two. One possibility is he's just, oh, ghosts got mentioned. The other possibility is because he, in some way he's connecting this to the Maharam's law about the Maharam's ruling about the presumption of death for mourning. All right, so that right, th- those are the two possibilities we're going to raise for now. Okay, so now let's get um, right this this law of the right so of the Ramah. He quotes it in his commentary on the Beit Yosef, 
And then again, when the Shulchan Aruch quotes this law about all the things you can't do to a goseis, the um, the, Ram, the Ramah comments and quotes the quotes this law. But here, but his his citation of the law is a little bit different. He says, new category: zman aruch Somebody who is goseis for a long time. That's what we're talking about. Somebody, somebody, right? Somebody who's somebody who's goseis for a long time and is unable to separate. So we saw there was no mention of long time in his source. Right? He introduced the category of right of right of long time. Secondly, right at the very end, he doesn't say anything about action versus inaction. He says this is not an action at all. Elishemesir hamunea. Is right. This is a. It's not that this is an inaction. It's a removal of an obstruction. That's a new halachi category as well. Um, it seems to me that one way of reading the Ramah is he puts in the category a long time. Because what he means by long time is the three days of the Maram. And there he's telling you that this whole notion of cases in which you can remove treatment applies only to right only to the right to that kind of ghosts who would presumptively die after three days. That's essentially what I think Rabbi Leich's argument is going to be. Um, now you can you can reject this by saying that um, that actually no Zman Aruch has nothing to do with three days, or you can reject this by saying well the Ramah quote, doesn't quote this about the Ramah he quotes it just he puts it in Shulchan Aruch just before the citation of the Ramah in three days so therefore they're obviously not connected at all. But the interesting thing is that when the Shulchan Aruch quotes the halacha of, of the Maharam, that somebody whose relatives have said, we saw your relative Agosis, Hayom Shloshayamim, you have to mourn from him, the Ramal puts in this line, Devadai Kvarmate, because he certainly already died. So why does he have to throw in this word certainly? It doesn't mean certainly as opposed to rove, because I think they already saw that people don't use those terms, uh, those terms definitely. So it's interesting. Um, the thing is, interesting question as to why he throws in this term vadai. Right? What is he adding by saying definitely uh, def- that he's definitely going going to have died? Okay. So, um, so I gave you I gave you the the Ravad Yosef just to show you that he paskins you that that you, that you really can't touch. So I'm being very radical. Um, okay, let's um, let's move on now to the uh, playing playing out the Maharam. Okay, so we have another Gemara that we have to uh, we have to look at to see how do we evaluate this claim of the Maharam that after three days you can pre- you can presume that the person is dead and you have to mourn for them. So the Gemara the Gemara in Gittin says that if somebody brings a divorce, having left the husband when the husband was old or sick, you're allowed to presume that the husband is still alive and therefore you can give the divorce to the wife and the advantage of the wife to being divorced as opposed to widowed is in terms of Yibo. Right, she doesn't have to marry the brother-in-law. Um, okay, right. That's right. Now Rava comes along in the Gemara and says that's only talking about a zakain shlohigia ligvurot. It's only talking about higia ligvurot, as Rashi tells you, means that a zakain is less than eighty uh, or a chole, because most most uh, patients, most sick people um, live, and so do most people over eighty. But a zakain who reached the age of eighty or a goses, since most gosesim die. You cannot give the get anymore. You have to presume that they're dead. Abaye says, "Hang on a sec. How can you right, How can you tell me the halacha is you can't give a get from a an elderly person who reached right, who reached eighty years old? 
But we have a Mishnah, we have another text that says that if you bring a get, even though the husband is 100 years old, you're allowed to give the get. So Rava is rejected. Right? Rava's wrong. But what is Rava wrong about? Is Rava wrong about the Goses? Or, right, sorry, is Rava wrong only about the Zakein Shigil Gvorot, the elderly person who reached 80? Or is he wrong about both the elderly person who reached 80 and the Goses? And if he's wrong, right, so is, is he wrong factually that most ghosts don't die? Does that mean that even most that even most ghosts don't die? That seems a little odd. Um, but nonetheless, Rav is treated as rejected. Then the Gemara says, no, well, you know what? No, maybe Rav is not even rejected even about the 80-year-old. Maybe we just say is that once you get to 100, so if you live to 100, you're going to live to 120. God. But 80 is a very dangerous time. Sorry, I don't know what the ages of anybody I have to call are. <laughs> Right, right, but uh, okay, right. So you can hold. You should hold like the other shita in the Gemara, right? That we just reject Rava entirely. Okay, Rashi says, right, and Rashi says interesting thing is maybe it says even if he's hundred years old, but not if he's but um, but eighty to ninety is still dangerous. Okay, right. New new suggestion: eighty to ninety is dangerous. Once you're over ninety, you're great. Okay. My point of this text is that um, Rava holds that a goses can be presumed must be presumed dead for the purposes of Gittin. The simple reading of the Gemara is that we reject this, but nobody meant, right, even though we agree that most Gosasim die, the question is not whether most Gosasim die, the question is whether the percentage of Gosasim that die is so high that we have to presume death. Okay, for these purposes. No time limit is given at all in anywhere in these texts. Um, Okay, then the Gemara gives us another context, which is dealing with, right, with with witnesses. It doesn't really matter to us what the case of the witnesses are. The Gemara thinks that a certain that uh, a group of witnesses might be liable um, for for perjury because their their their, ter- their testimony still matters because the other pair of witnesses who might have exempted them were Gosasim. And the reason we have to tell you this is I might have thought that the fact that the other pair of witnesses were Gosasim means that we treat them as legally dead. No, right? So we say Malvdet What would I have thought? Most Gosasim. Um, die? The answer is no. Right now they're alive. Okay, so what I want to get out of here is that nobody thinks that most Gosasim live. Everybody agrees that most Gosasim die. The question is whether most Gosasim die allows you to presume that they're dead at a certain point or doesn't, or allows you to treat them as dead. The answer is we never allow, so far as I can tell, we never allow the fact of being a Gosas to treat you as dead legally in the Gemara. Sometimes, some people might allow us to treat you as presumptively dead. Okay. Um, right, that's, a, that's the way Rashi frames it. We have one other case where the Gemara uh, suggests that there might be an Afghamina if somebody was a ghost face, because I might think the fact that they're going to die is enough. Reject it. Okay, so the answer, right, and this is important for uh, understanding um, Professor uh, Rubenstein's critique, and why I don't think it works, is that there's no debate in the Talmud that, Rav, Rav, that most most Gosasim die. There is debate about whether most Gosasim is enough to create a presumption. And that whether it's enough to create a presumption is going to depend on what for what purposes of the law are. And maybe it's going to depend on how long. Maybe it's going to depend on what caused the what, what caused you to be a ghost or all, all those sorts of things. There's no there's no problem in with the Gemara claiming that. Uh, based on the Gemara, for somebody claiming that after a certain period, a ghost will die, unless you think that the logic of the Gemara's rejection of Rava is that we never get past most ghosts in dying um, to a presumption. But there, that's why the Maharam is important. So now we're going to take a look at the Maharam himself as opposed to citations.
The Ram starts by quoting our line, the Gosis is alive for all purposes. So he knows what the default is. Then he says, as a commentary on most Gosim are alive for purposes, there was a story. There was a woman who was um, four days away from her husband. And Jews come and tell her, You're, we left, right, four, right? So they have to have been at least four, they have to be on the road for four days. Your husband, we left him a Gosis. And he says, I told her to mourn. Why did I tell her to mourn? Because our Mishnah in, says that if you send a get from a foreign country and you leave the person, you leave the person elderly or sick, you can give it on the presumption he's still alive. But the Gemara says that's only talking about, um, right? Only talking about if he, right, it's quoting Rabbah, only if he's sick, but not if he's a Gosis, because most Gosis him die. And we say, right, why, right? We say, why? And he says, not because all Gosim die, because maybe he dies. You can't give the get. In order to give the get, right, so the standard there is very low. According to give the get, you have to be sure he's alive. And here, you, how can you be sure he's alive? They left him, right, you left him a gosis. Um, okay, and he quotes, right, and the Gemara over there, when the Gemara says, when the Gemara rejects, he says, the, the principle of most, most ghosts of him die, it doesn't mean that we think most ghosts of him live, it just means, right, it just means that even though most ghosts of him were not in front of us, we presume they died, since most of them die, Right, the halacha, the halacha is that way, but when it comes to test, right, for the case of Gittin, right, he's, right, as long as they're living in front of us, the ghost is in front of us, the ghost is in front of us is alive. Okay, however, he says, but when they're not right, so all the laws, everything which says the ghost is already that's talking about when the ghost is in front of us. But if you left the person a ghost says, right, he thinks that the Gemara never rejects Rabbah on that point, and the Gemara allows you to say that. If you that if if you left someone a ghost says you can now presume that they're dead, and then he says, "Aha, in Cain, but he don't say." So in our case, Rov goes to see him. Enam chayim bet yamim o gimel dalot. Then he he has a fudge factory. He says, "You know what?" The Gemara says that according to one shita, that you can't give the get if you left the husband a ghost says, because maybe he's dead. But you know what? That standard is not the same here for mourning because in order to give the get, I have to be certain that he's alive. So even if only some ghosts of him die, I couldn't be certain he's alive. Okay, now he'll tell you in this remote of science will introduce. No, it's not enough to say that some ghosts of him die, because everyone, right? Some presented if everyone dies, we generally treat people as having a presumption of being alive. So we can well, the most what we can say from that Gemara is that enough a high enough percentage of ghosts of him die, uh, high enough percentage of ghosts of him die that um, that you can no longer presume they're alive. Okay, so now we have a Gemara which says that according, at least according to Rava, that a high enough percentage of ghosts of Sim die that you can no longer presume they're alive. Or I need, he says, is enough ghosts of Sim, high enough percentage of ghosts of Sim dying that I can allow this woman to mourn, that can command this woman to mourn. So he says, you know what? Okay, but maybe the Gemara is just talking about right, any period of time. 30 seconds after you leave a ghost says, enough ghosts of him die that they no longer have a presumption of life. But after two or three days, he says, that's enough that they have a presumption of death. Okay, so that's what the Maram accomplishes here. He says, is the Gemara says most ghosts of him die. The Gemara doesn't reject that, doesn't reject that. It might reject whether enough ghosts of him die to create this legal status. But even if the Gemara rejected the claim that enough ghosts of him die to create Right to get rid of the presumption of life in any right in a, a brief amount of time, I'm going to claim that everyone agrees that over a certain period of time, what he, what he says here is 
two, three, or four days, right? The text is problematic, right? Bet Yamim Ogimel Dalit, so we don't know what's going on here. That's enough to that's enough to allow to allow me to order the woman to mourn. Okay, and the text is problematic, right? It, right, you have another version of it, the same text, which says two days or three, doesn't have the four. Uh, right, another version of the text, right, we're on page bottom of page twelve, which says two or three or four. Um, right, in the version, the version that the that the rush quotes, it's three or four. The version that right now we're on page uh, thirteen. The version the Mordechai quotes is two or three. So we really don't write the, the version that goes by Munios, but these are all medieval citations. Uh, he says two or three, and then he has a word race, which probably which might mean Rebbe, or might be it was supposed to be a four, it might be the four really read Rebbe. I have no idea what the original text is. Right? All I know is that there's a text in Maram which argues that even if uh even if the, the having the, there's even if a ghost says cannot infinite right in an infinitesimal amount of time. Um, be presumed dead after two or three days for the purposes of mourning. The go- right, the ghost says can be presumed dead, or four days. Okay. Now, okay, it's right. You'll see the other versions of it, right? But what matters to me, right, is that the key line is the Aguda, who also has three or four days, says that the Rami Rodenberg didn't just tell her to mourn; he ordered her to mourn. Okay. Um, even though the Kitzur Piskei Rush says misafik, right? Because there's a doubt, you have to be concerned lest you die. But he also says you have to mourn over him. Okay, so now what we have is two different things. We have Amaramu says that you that you can presume mourning, you can presume death after two or three or four days. We don't know which the, which which it is. And you have a Ramah talking about um, removing. Uh, re- removing the woodchopper from Agoses, who has been Agoses for a long time, which he quotes in that context. But maybe the context isn't meaningful, and we don't know how seriously to take the how to seriously take mourning. What does it mean that you're presumptively dead for the purposes of of mourning? Okay, so the Sefer Truma has a uh, has a whole long discussion of how we treat this uh, how we treat this halacha, and he introduces a new category which we saw previously. He says, "Well, you know what? It's we really have to worry about whether the ghost is is in his is in his good mind in his good mind or not." So he says, "When the, when we say the ghost is as if alive, that's the ghost is only as if alive for things that happen without the ghost's involvement and don't require the ghost's mind. But for things that require the ghost's mind, right? That right? That there's no presumption. Even though there's a presumption the ghost is alive, there's no presumption that the ghost is compost mentis." Okay, and he has this wild, right? Then he gets into the whole wild rereading of the um, of the debate about whether the get, right, whether the get could be given while the person, uh, the, the agent left the person while the agent was still a ghost face, or whether the, the husband became a ghost face after the agent received the get. Um, okay, I just want right, um, and he says, right, so here's this guy, right? So even though we learned in uh, that you can give a get even when you're a trefa. Even if your esophagus is a trachea or cut, you just you just wave to the wave a consent assent to giving a get. That's enough to give a get. Um, and even though a trait for everyone dies, right in that case, and the get works, right. So obviously, right, a, the ghostes should be more alive than a trefa because the ghostes some ghostes live, uh, right. None, right. Nonetheless, you can't right. By the ghostes, you can't have a presumption. Uh, you can't have a presumption that a ghostes is in his right mind. And he says new category. 
right? The sum goes says any yachol adaber. So he says we can the the ghost says is presumptively is alive, but not presumptively sane. Okay, fine. We'll see that there's a um, this turns into a whole debate about uh, about the uh, whether the ghost says could hide the hold of Rav. So the Torah quotes that um, Rashi Rabbeinu Chananel said that being alive meant that the ghost says can authorize a divorce. Uh, sorry, no, that he can't, even though he's alive, he can't authorize a divorce, right? But the rewrote that he know he can issue a divorce, you just have to uh, check it, you have to check him out or not. So we see again that the categories of um, of life and death are very complicated. The category of might be, according to Rashi and Rabbi Nechanel, that the ghost is alive for all matters except giving a get. And they don't right, no, and they don't say that you can give him that you can just test his sanity. So that becomes a whole a whole controversy as a whole uh, as a whole, whole debate, um, right? And then we're going to have a whole debate whether this applies distinguishes between a ghost be adam and a ghost be deshamayim um, as as well, right? A whole debate about whether right whether whether the presumption that the ghost is not in his right mind can be overcome or not. Fine. I just want that just introduces our complications. Okay, let's get back to the maharal. So we have right. So we have this. Um, we have this law of presumption of death in the case of mourning, and the question we're asking fundamentally, right? What Rabbi Blech does is he takes that definition in the context. Uh, he takes that law in the context of mourning that after three days, you are allowed to you're allowed to presume death, and he right, and he says that's the definition of gosis for the purposes of the ethics of Israel's treatment. In order to make that work, we have to do two things. We have to say that the definition can move that the, the the law about three days can move from the realm of mourning to the realm of withdrawal of treatment, and I would also have to agree that that in fact that the law of withdrawal about withdrawal of treatment applies to agosis. So I already said that I'm not going to. I don't really agree with the last move, but right now we're evaluating the debate between Professor Rubenstein and Rabbi Blake, and they both do agree with that move. So I want to talk about whether you can move the halacha. From mourning to withdrawal, right to other areas of halacha. So we saw that I I gave you a preliminary argument that you can. The preliminary argument I gave you that you can is that the Ramah quotes this in the con- quotes the law about withdrawal of treatment in the context of mourning. But I also showed okay maybe not because maybe it's right because he quotes it on the wrong subcategory in Shulchan Aruch. So let's take a look. And the second question is uh, how accepted is the Maharam's category? Halakhically. So the answer to that, I think, is going to be very simple. The Maram's category is universally accepted. Uh, right? Nobody halakhically rejects the Maram's claim about mourning, so far as I know. But there might be debate about how far we can extend it. So let's take a look at Rashlom Aluria. Now we're in the, the right 16th century, you know, coterminous with the Ramah, and see what he does in Salacha. So he says, um, he quotes the Ramah, and the, right, he quotes the Maram and explains what expected. And then he says the following. Um, don't derive from the Maharam, Rov that he says most of them die, and therefore we say maybe she the husband died, which implies because he says that most ghosts die, you might think that means that there's no legal certainty. Okay, cheska means on the presumption of death. Right? You might think that's the case, right? And this the Sefer Mitzvah also wrote. That it's only when we left the Megosis that we're afraid maybe he died. Because for the purpose of getting, we pointed out, right, the issue is maybe he died might be enough to prevent you from giving the get. 
But he says, no. Uh, no, I think that when they say maybe he died, they don't mean maybe in the, in the sense that we're in doubt. But rather, we treat this as certainty. And therefore, he thinks that just as we allow we command her to mourn, so too we allow the woman to marry her brother-in-law after two or three days. And presumably, we also allow her, right? The reason he says two or three days, brother-in-law, why does he talk about allowing her to remarry anybody else if she's not a Yavama? Is because ordinarily, in every case but Yibum, we require women to wait 91 days between, between marriages in order to determine paternity. So he says, but right, but actually the halacha is right that the halacha about mourning is extensible to right to the right to the realm of um, to the realm of remarriage. Okay, and when he says shema, that's because only because in the context of divorce, all we needed was maybe. But in the context of mourning and the context of remarriage, we require definitely don't think that just because they said maybe there that this robe is not this majority is not sufficient to create certainty. Okay, so to any time witnesses come and say that they saw the husband being a gosses, we say he's already died. And when we say, um, we say maybe he died, right? He says that's only talking about when they come within one or two days, because in one or two days, it's only a maybe, but three days that's certainly enough to make it definite. Okay. Um, right, and he thinks that this that this is the this is the this is the proof of the uh, of this is the proof of the Gemara, and rather, right, what's, what the Gemara must be saying when it says rove goes in the Misa is most goes him die, and we say therefore that the the majority is sufficient to put the person in the presumption of death, even for the sake of leniency. Okay, so Shlomo Luria says, Marshall says that the uh, the ruling of the Maram is not just a statement about mourning. It's a universal statement that the Gosses is always presumed dead for all purposes after two to four days. Okay, now that position um, seems to be highly problematic because there's a Gemara in Yavamot, and the Gemara in Yavamot says that we don't testify, uh, we don't, we don't, we don't testify about um, about somebody's death until we actually see their their nefesh leave. Uh, right. That, so that should include a Gosses. But we'll see this Mishnah does not include the category of ghosts and the people we don't testify about. And so they don't testify that a husband is dead, right? This is talking about testifying about marriage. Even if you see the, the husband in the, all these terrible physical conditions as a result of human hands being eaten by lions, but it doesn't say it about the ghosts. Um, so the Gemara contradicts it by saying, hang on a sec, right? You said that even if we see him as a Maguyad, but uh, right, but that but that seems to suggest the Maguyad can live, but we have a text which says the Maguyad can't live. Um, right, and the Gemara answer is no, right? Actually, that's a dispute about the Maguyad, but never mentions anything about it, never mentions anything about the Gosses. And then there's a whole controversy about what it right about that actually that doesn't matter to us, our purposes, running out of time. Okay, however, Tosfot, when he quotes this Gemara, Tosfot says, Hang on a sec, we also learned in the Mishnah. That you can't testify about the ghosts. All right, and therefore, Tosfos says, "Hang on a sec." It says the ghosts, even though the ghosts lives, because some ghosts him die and some ghosts live. And we also wrote that you can't testify about the ghosts. So, right, so Tosfos tries to answer that maybe we're talking about a uh, 
we're talking about a, um, a particular kind of gosis, the gosis bideadam. Another possibility the Reese says is um, maybe the, the maybe the, um, the maybe the Maguyad and the gosis will certainly die, but maybe they won't die in time. As an interesting notion, and maybe the gosis who is going to die is only the gosis who dies immediately. Um, but a gosis who but a gosis who survives any kind of any kind of length of time, that gosis could live forever. The Tosa introduces a whole new set of categories. Right, first of all. He reads the Gemara as saying that even though the Maram, right, he reads the Maram as being against an explicit Gemara. Maram says that if you can testify that, you, that someone was a ghost three days ago, the wife goes and mourns. And Tosa says, no, you can't. So we have to, so we can, one possibility is that Tosa just disagrees with Maram, but that's right. The other possibility is that, that the Tosa is talking about within a day or two. Or the more elaborate answer of Tosfut is that Tosfut is saying, right, or Tosfut is talking about um, a person who's a Goseis Bidei Adam as opposed to a Goseis Bidei Shemayim. Or Tosfut is saying this weird position that uh, once the Goseis, right, totally against the Maram, that most Goseis die within a day, but any Goseis who lives longer than a day is going to live forever. Okay, so we have to figure out how to integrate, how to integrate this, um, this Tosfut with the Maram and how we handle it, how we handle it, halacha. Okay, so we see the tour just quotes the Maram. Uh, the Prisha says, what does three days mean? This implies that the standard method, the standard approach of Gose, standard way of Gose is to be three days. Now, that doesn't make any sense that he thinks all Gose is live for three days. That's just absurd. What he means is that it doesn't last more than three days. I think that's pretty obvious, uh, right? That he thinks this, but he, and he's talking about a standard case. He doesn't talk about, not an absolute thing. Okay. Uh, Beis Yosef quotes the Maram, the Shulchan Aruch quotes the Maram, as we saw with the Ramah adding the Vadek for a mate. Um, the Shach explains exactly the way the, Ram, the Maram does, that it's only, a ghost is only alive while he's in front of us, but there's no presumption of life. Okay, so but now our issue is, how do we evaluate the uh, Marshal's claim that this is not just a law for the purposes of mourning? So the Shulchan Aruch says that, right, quoting our Mishnah, that even if you, um, that even if you see uh, the person are crucified and be eaten by birds, you still can't testify about him. Um, right? Um, right? Now, why can't you testify about him? What about three days? We have an apparent contradiction in the Shulchan Aruch. He quotes like the Maram. He quotes the Maram. And he also quotes this case, that uh, right, which says you can't testify about somebody. That seems to suggest, why doesn't he say that at least you mourn about them? Um, right? So that, right? And we'll, we'll see. We'll see that the halacha is going to be uh, that that you can't, that we don't allow women to mourn unless they have testimony that allows them to remarry. So once you have that presumption, so then it seems that as Shulchan Aruch quotes the Maram about being allowed to mourn, the simplest reading is that he's al- that she's also allowed to remarry, and the marshal is correct. Um, so now we get to an interesting historical feature. Um, there's a work called the Beit Shmuel and Shulchan Aruch Eben HaEzer. It exists in two editions. The 1689 edition commenting on this law about right that you can't um, right that you can't testify even about somebody who is who has been pierced by arrows accepts it as a given and mentions nothing about the haram however in 1690 a work comes comes out called the Beit Hillel and the Beit Hillel um, challenges and says hang on a second there seems to be a contradiction here because the Shulchan Aruch in one place says that talking about what well, the husband's lost at sea, says you don't allow women to mourn unless they can remarry. 
and yet over there he says that she can that she can remarry if if if, her, if people testify her husband was a gosays and yet over here it says that even if he's being eaten by birds you can't right you can't testify unless you actually saw him dead so how do we resolve all this so the baby law goes back and forth he he comes up with a possibility right he right he quotes right he comes up with the possibility that maybe actually um, we sh- right we shouldn't let the woman mourn here either in the end he says however but I found in the rush and the Mordechai that in fact women mourn on the basis of on the basis of a husband being away for three days and therefore it seems like he emerges saying oh so therefore if the Maram says here you can mourn that must mean he thinks that even though testimony that somebody is crucified and being eaten by birds is not enough to create a presumption of death but stating that somebody is a ghost was a goses is enough to create a presumption of death Okay, right. So that sounds exactly like the Marshall. All right, but he basically still goes back and forth. That's just his last line. You could argue that he doesn't necessarily agree with it, and that's what Professor Rubenstein argues. In 1694, a second edition of the Beit Shmuel comes out. Um, it's a little puzzling that Professor Rubenstein's article he seems to think that that the Beit Shmuel died before the second edition came out. Um, and I don't really know what's going on with the death date of the Beit Shmuel because Wikipedia says he died in the 1700s. But the Barilan Responsive Project says he dies in 1698. But they both agree that he was alive for the second edition. But Wikipedia also says that the second edition was edited by other hands. So I can't tell you what happened. And Professor Rubenstein told me he doesn't remember what his source was for saying that the Bishmul died in between. Be that as it may, the second edition is very, is very uh, different than the first. Uh, the second edition, he go, right, he says, right, he says at the end of his commentary on that whole case, all the claim, everything I've talked about so far is Ayri Kishuenu Goses. But if he's a Goses, Tosfus says that if he's a Goses and Meguyad, you can testify about him. And guess what? Just like he's, if he's a Goses and he's been physically injured in, by, in a clear way that you can testify him. And if he's Goses for three days, then you can testify that he's dead for the purposes of remarriage. As it says in Yeridea, right? So he quote, right, quoted, quoting the Maram about mourning. And he says and the same thing is true in Beit Hillel. And he refers to this also. So we have so far is... Um, there's a maram. The maram is the, the maram doesn't mention any limits. Maram just says, right? Says she has to mourn. He doesn't say that, that it's not true for other halachot. The right, the, the halacha in the Shulchan Aruch appears to be that if you're allowed, if you're if you're allowed to mourn, then you must be presum, presumed dead for the purposes of remarriage. The marshal says that explicitly, and the Beit Hillel seems to think that's true. That's the meaning of the of the Maharam as quoted by the Rush and everybody else. Um, and the Beit Shmuel uh, comes out that way explicitly. Okay, here's here I give you the halacha in, uh, in the Shalom where he tells you, right? V'chen ishto, a thrill hasbido, his wife is, is forbidden to mourn him or to uh, or to wear black. So long as the testimony isn't sufficient to allow her to remarry. Now he gets this from a shut rivash, which we're not unfortunately going to have time to uh, do. It's a wildly fun shut rivash, uh, where uh, where somebody, where a woman tries to remarry on the basis of testimony that somebody by her husband's name died in a particular city. But the problem is that we know there are multiple people by that name uh, in that city, and she keeps on trying. Right, and her supporters think that the rabbi who is right, who is not willing to let her remarry, is being a chaniyak. And being too from, so they try and evade him, and they say, "Just give her a letter saying that there's testimony that a man by this name died, and then we'll right, then she'll, we'll go to another city and she'll remarry." 
because other people will assume that that's why you gave it. So he says, no, no, no. So a Beitin can never issue any testimony. And she's not allowed to mourn. Right? It turns into a whole huge public fight. Whether he meant that as an absolute rule or not, I don't know. Um, but the Ramah quotes it as an absolute rule that if you're allowed, right, that if you're, um, that if you're allowed to remarry, then you're, um, then, right, then you, if you're allowed to mourn, you're allowed to remarry. If you're not allowed to remarry, you're not allowed to mourn. So now, this is quoted by the Ramah. We don't know what the Rav Yosef Karo held. Rav Yosef Karo also doesn't quote the Shulta Giborim, so we don't know the Rav Yosef Karo has any category of withdrawal of treatment either. But the Ramah, who's the one who introduces the category of withdrawal of treatment, also says explicitly that if you that you that you're not allowed to uh, you're not allowed to mourn if you're not allowed to remarry, and therefore simple shot is that the um, that the Bishmul is correct, and that um, and that the intent of the Ramah in quoting the Maharam is that um, is that the um, is that she's allowed to remarry as well, and that Gosis creates an absolute presumption of death within three days. Okay, there is a counter to that. Uh, the counter to that is that um, if we go back and look at the Shulchan Aruch's, uh, Shulchan Aruch's text. Uh, so now we're going to go back to page. Uh, page was it? Was it on? Uh, oh, sorry. I'm uh, getting there. A uh, long, long way back. Um, sorry, I should have said this up better. Here we are. Uh, right, so you look at the you look at the um, Shulchan Aruch's text of the Maharam. All right, by far enough. Uh, here we are. Yeah. No. Okay, I apologize. If you go back and look at it, you'll see that the um, my fault. You'll see that the uh, that the Shulchan Aruch says that um, he doesn't talk about wives. He talks about fathers, fathers and. Uh, Fathers, father, fathers and brothers. Um, so what some people counter is, hang on a sec, you're trying to build everything in the Ramah and the Beishmul on the claim that the Maram's law about mourning can be extended to, can be extended to uh, presumption of death for remarriage because you allow, you're allowing the wife to mourn, but the Ramah never said that a wife can mourn. Well, the Ramah, right, well, the Shonar never said a wife can mourn. The Shonar only said that a brother, a brother or a father can mourn. So that's not a good proof. The counter to that is, but the Beis Yosef quotes the original text of the Maram as do all his sources, and they all say wife. So it's very unlikely to be just be to just to really be just to wife or brother. But that's what there's there's going to be a raging debate about. We're now going to get into that raging debate. Okay, so the raging debate uh, comes up here is that um, right is, is the uh, starts with the Marchash, but what I want to I want to show you only out. Show you outcomes of how it plays out. So he says, uh, the Marchash, right, the country is going to Itasa, says, hang on a sec, I don't, right, I'm, I quote them, I quote, Revyesh I could ask, right, talking about the Maram, the K, right, we're, we're on page uh, 27 now. The Kevanch Edu Zu Ain Maspik Latiralinase, right, since this testimony about the, 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 the husband being a ghost is not sufficient, um, line line five of it, right, is not sufficient to allow her to remarry. And if and if she remarries, she'll, right, he says she'll have to leave the second husband. How could the Maram say that you're allowed to mourn her? Okay, and right, so uh, right, so he thinks that um, it must be that um, it must be that you know, the case we're talking about is um, it must be that somehow the case 
the case, the case, in the case over there, there's really no concern. She's going to, she's going to, she's going to remarry. Okay, it has a very technical distinction, right? That um, that the, the that the Rama in the Rama when he says you're not allowed to mourn, it's only talking about if there in cases where there isn't even enough testimony to generate mourning. But here, there's enough testimony to generate mourning. But just because there's enough testimony to generate mourning doesn't mean it. It's a very it's a very uh, difficult read. I'm actually going to share my screen now because I think I'm going too fast to let people follow. So let's let's do it on my screen now. Okay, so he says, right? So his answer is that in the end, um, in the end, not only the Bishmul is so wrong, and not only is she allowed is she allowed not allowed to remarry. If she remarried, she would not be she would she would have to divorce the second husband. But other people disagree and don't say it quite as radically, right? So the the leader of Cheskelando. Um, says, hang on a sec, when we said, according to Tosfoth, you can't testify that a woman can remarry because her husband was a ghost safe, do we really mean to say, except after three days? That's ridiculous. Can't be after three days, he says, because we never let a woman marry except um, until three months, so why shouldn't we at least require three months? Um, right, and he says, rather, it must be that she can't remarry on the basis of this testimony, it's only about mourning. And he says, Ella, Talmud. And I don't even know what the halacha would be if we right, if we about allowing her remarry, so he's not quite as strong, right? It's not quite as strong as the person up here who says we don't we force her to divorce. He says we wouldn't let her remarry. Maybe we wouldn't force her divorce. Maybe force her divorce. Maybe uh, maybe we would. Okay, and he tries to resolve everything by saying that you know what? There's only, only most ghosts seem die within a day, but they don't keep on dying over the next two days. If if a ghost survives a day, they'll survive. Right? They'll they'll they might survive forever. Okay, the bait mayor. Also, right, the Beit Mayor also thinks thinks it's clear that uh, right he says since it's only Rove, then how could we possibly allow a woman to remarry on the basis of just the majority? So therefore, it's obvious to me that uh, it's obvious to me that um, we don't allow her to remarry. Uh, but he says it must be that. So what about the the Maram's case? Maram's case must be talking about a very creative idea. Maram must be talking about a case and not unreasonable. Uh, Maram the the um, Aram must be talking about a case where he knew that before the three months were up, he would know for sure whether the husband was alive or not. And that's how, right, and that's how he, and that's, therefore, there was no risk in his case that allowing her to mourn would allow her to remarry. He doesn't address the case of Yibum that the marshal uh, came up. And he says that even though the Ramah said she certainly did, nah, he didn't mean certainly, he just meant, you know, sort of certainly. Um, um, Okay, and he thinks because if that were if if the Ramah really meant it, um, right, then we would we would have to say that if you left somebody goes for an hour, then three days later his wife could remarry, and Chas Shalom should say anything like this. Okay, so therefore he says what really must be going on is right. He says the following: um, the problem is that in Avelis, unless there's a majority that she's, we shouldn't make her more. And generally, Avelis we go to Kula. So why do we make her mourn if we're not if we're not certain he's dead? So the answer is that um, that really we're pretty sure he's dead, right? Even a majority would not be enough to mourn. You'd have to be really certain to be sure that she'd mourn. But guess what we have here? We have it right. He's he's certainly dead. So the Ramal writes he's certainly dead, meaning that there isn't even a miuch eno matsui, right? There isn't even a a a uh, let's say a ten percent chance, right? There's a debate about what uh, an infrequent minority means. There isn't even, but between five and fifteen percent, there isn't even an infrequent chance he's alive. He, we're really pretty sure he's dead. But he says the edus isha when it comes to 
the right testimony for a uh, allowing women to remarry, we are so strict that even if that even if we're certain he's dead, meaning there's not even what we normally consider the minimal standard for uh, for uncertainty, which is a mutch eno matsui, even so we don't let her remarry. Okay, and therefore he says, and therefore he says um, the maram is read the the beit is not halacha. But then he says, hang on a sec, but I saw. That the that the the maral the, mar, the marshal paskin that way of luria he must not have seen the tosfot, um, okay, and therefore he thinks the end of the halacha is um, the, end, the end the end of the halacha is that she should write that according to according to some people according to the marchash right they said that even if she even if she remarries she has to divorce but he thinks that's not so true, he thinks the bottom line is that is that if she's if she remarries she doesn't have to divorce. Okay, and we'll see that that is the um, that is the standard position, right? People go back and forth with many, many critiques of the um, many, many critiques of the Bichmul. But at the end of the day, uh, almost everybody, with the exception of the with the exception of the the uh, Marchash, almost everybody ends up saying that the woman is not allowed to remarry, but if she got married, she is right. She does not have to leave the husband. The second husband, if the um, so long as the first husband doesn't show up alive, what does that mean? Okay, so what was explained, we saw what we saw in the Beit Mayor, What it means is that essentially everybody agrees that most gosasim, and the overwhelming majority of gosasim, die within three days. Right, so so many, right, such a high percentage that we force her to mourn, even though normally we don't force people to mourn unless there's certainty. The only issue is. That there is a level of certainty beyond the right beyond certainty, and that's a special rabbinic addition for allowing remarriage, right? And so there's a controversy. Everybody, so it's not everybody agrees that the Marams that uh, Maram says that you can mourn that you can mourn after after three days. Um, the Beit Shmuel and the Marsh and the Marshal think that that means she can remarry. Just about everybody agrees that in principle she should be able to remarry because he's definitely dead. Just there are a lot of people who think that there's a special new super requirement for super certainty. And some people think there isn't such a special requirement. But everyone agrees about the that the vast majority of Gosasim die within three days, and not all of them. Okay. Um, now we don't have time to, but right, we'll see that Ramosha Feinstein introduces, which was already in the Beit Mayor, and I'm rushing to it too rapidly, is that some people have an additional thing, and they say it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that the the ghost, it, what the Maram never said anything about three days since he was Goses. What the Maram means is somebody was Goses for three days, right? So there's some people who think that the Goses dies after the Goses the die after a day or not at all, and other people think, and this is the position that Feinstein takes. That ghostsim who have been ghostsim for three days are certainly going to die now, but if you've been ghostsim after a day, there's still a chance you'll there's still a chance you'll remove yourself, and they're ambiguous, ambivalent about what happens if you left somebody after they were ghostsim for a day. Okay, so I'm going to argue, right? The consensus position is that the the wepaskin like the maram, that the maram means that a ghostsim is definitely dies after three days. And the only debate really is about whether it, right, whether the percentage of ghosts who die for three days is enough, even in the super special case of allowing women to remarry. 
Okay. Now, what does that mean for our purposes, right? We're talking about withdrawal of treatment. Um, so, Rabbi Bleich argues that the, um, that the gosses is defined here in reverse. What he says is that if there's a presumption and a near certainty that a gosses will die within three days, then that must mean that anybody who can survive more than three, who has a realistic chance, right, was Amir Hamatsoi, of, of living more than three days is not a gosses. Now the question is, is that true or not? Um, so the answer is that's not entirely true. That's not entirely true. Because um, we're only interested here in the question of presumptions. We're not dealing with the right, we're not dealing with right, we're dealing right, we're dealing with the question with the with the we're dealing with the specific with the dealing with the specific question of not whether we consider this person dead, but whether we can presume the person is dead. So it might be that for the right, so in the in the specific halacha, so here's Blake's arguing. Blake says, look, the 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 um, the Maram says that if a woman gets testimony that her husband was a ghost three days ago, she can remarry. That obviously means that the husband is dead. It can't mean, oh, the husband's on a ventilator. Because she can't remarry if the husband's on a ventilator. Nobody thinks that a ghost is dead for those purposes. Therefore, Black says that if you quote the halacha, the halacha which says that a which says that a um, a woman can remarry if her husband was a ghost three days ago, or if her husband was a ghost for three days, obviously means that this that a ghost that the person is going to inevitably die regardless of any medical treatment. That's true. And therefore, if you want to claim that the Gosses referred to a specific medical condition that died, where people died after three days in the Middle Ages and in the 16th century, uh, or whatever the last person who said that is. But nowadays, the same medical condition can be kept alive for two years. So obviously, you have to say, well, okay, the Maram's law is is, is invalid because, uh, right? Because nowadays, just because your husband was a Gosses proves nothing. Maybe he was on a ventilator. Sorry, Blythe's argument is, but. Ventilators are not the first improvement in medical technology. And there are very few conditions that are not affect they're not affectable by um, right by medical treatment. So really it must be that it's talking about an objective category. That in order to be a gosis, you have to be overwhelmingly, not inevitably, you have to overwhelmingly die within three days. That has to be part of the definition. And that's why his opening definition is, right? If we go right, if we go back to page one of the uh of the first sheet, his opening definition is um reasonably be deemed capable of potential survival for, right? He knows enough not to say inevitably, but it's halakhically inevitable. So in that sense, right, you have a choice. You can either claim that the Maram's halakha is defunct, which is fine, who really cares? If you want, right? Because right? we have instant communication, so there's no nafgamina of, we left your husband to go say three days ago, right? That's not going to happen much for a while. So we can just say, you know what? Go say is always referred to a specific physiological condition. And that specific physiological condition was survivable for three days before modern medicine, and now is survivable infinitely. And but the thing is, if that's the case, it makes no sense to extend the category of gosses for divorce, right, for remarriage to the to the extension of of of, of withdrawal of treatment. They have nothing to do with each other conceptually. 
the whole law about divorce was evidentiary. There's nothing about a husband who's going to die in three days that makes him less married. It's just an evidentiary principle. So there's no reason that you can't, there's no reason to say that the, that the term gosteis in that category means the same thing as the term gosteis does here. Um, so what is Rabbi's argument, which is, I think, eminently reasonable, is that if 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 you, the Ramah, are, right, and the Bishmul, right, if you, the Ramah, and then supported by the Bishmul, are saying that the category gosteis for the purpose of remarriage, the evidentiary category, is also relevant to categories that are not evidentiary but status oriented. It must be that the evidentiary category actually reflects some kind of status. Right, that's Ray Blake's argument. It's a reasonable argument, I think. Uh, I don't think any of Professor Rubinstein's evidence has in any way even relates to it, because it doesn't in any way depend on inevitability. It's just right. We're, all, we're the whole. We're always talking about legal certainty. However. However, you can respond to Rebbe by saying, "No, actually, I don't think right. I just I, I accept everything you say about the about how the Bechmol function of the Bechmol was actually saying that the evidentiary the evidence for three days actually defines the category of gosis for those purposes. But who says the definition of gosis is the same for withdrawal of treatment as it is for marriage? Or more strikingly." Right? Who says that the that who says that the Ramah and the Shilta Giborim are actually talking about Gosei's at in uh, about um, Gosei's at all? Maybe they're talking about Gosei's Zman Aruch, which is a wholly different category. Okay. Um, so Ramosha Feinstein um, takes the position that Gosei's actually does describe a uh, does describe a particular physiological phenomenon. Um, and he, right, whether anyone knows that phenomenon or not, right, he says that Hebra Kadisha could know about it, doctors used to know about it, but don't know about it anymore, um, and, um, right, I, if you look on the web, you'll see that Oscar the Cat seems to be able to good, good at, good at knowing about it, there's a controversy whether Oscar the Cat showing up in the beds of his, in the beds of his hospice patients before they die is just coincidence or not, but apparently Oscar the Cat is, is, is is at least as good at, you know, at, as the stock market is at predicting the Super Bowl or vice versa. Um, Professor Stadlan uh, linked to an article where uh, cancer, where certain kinds of markers might actually lead to death within three days. Um, my take is that the best way around the circumstances, if the argument, like the argument between Professor Rubinstein or Abayich about whether for all other purposes in halacha, right, a gosis can't live more than three days is correct. I think Rabbi Bleich is correct. That the, the that the that the Maram's the Maram's position is not controversial. Maybe Tosfos disagrees, but even if Tosfos disagrees, who says we possibly like Tosfos against Maram? Much easier to say that, that everyone agrees. Um, there's a dispute about whether you can extend the Maram to remarriage Lichatchila. Right, ab initio, but Bidiyevit, the majority of people agree that you can't extend it. And even the people who think you can't extend it, even Bidiyevit, are only saying so because of a special humra about the category of Eshid Isha, not because of a generic issue about the definition of Goses. But here we run into a problem. I might say to you, you know what, whatever the definition is for remarriage, the definition for withdrawal withdrawing treatment should be even more severe because it's a withdrawal, it's a failure to fulfill your obligation to save life. Or I might say no, because here we have a really, that the obligation to save somebody from whatever the pain of ghost is, 
is right is greater than the obligation to allow women to remarry. Right? You can play yourself with yourself how exactly you want that to play out. Um, but I think that if we were to if we were to say that the that the category ghosts for the purposes of withdrawal of treatment is the same as the category of ghosts elsewhere in halacha, uh, you would have very you would either have to adopt Rabbi Blake's position or something more strict. Uh, however, the alternative is to say that actually, when the Ramah quotes, right, even though the Ramah quotes it in the context of the Maram, um, it, the meaning of his category, uh, the meaning of his category is not the same. And he doesn't say three days specifically. Um, maybe he, he's using it, he's using it as an unevidentiary category because he thinks that there's, right, that, that it's, this is the only place to mention other categories of ghosts. Maybe I was wrong about the organ originally. I think that the, I, I think that even if the Ramo didn't mean that, I think the Shilta Giborim has none of the Ramo's rhetoric. He doesn't say his rule. He just says, So I think we're much better off if you want a more liberal position about withdrawal of treatment, which you may or may not want, um, saying that the category ghost says in the context of this discussion is unique um, and conceding the Rebbe Leich is right everywhere else because the only alternative to Rebbe Leich is a stricter position. Not a uh, not not a more not a more lenient position. Uh, that would be that would that would be uh, that would be my take. Because um, everywhere else the ghostis is kechay lechold varav, um, and there's no there's no basis anywhere for saying that the ghost is defined anywhere else in halacha. There's no obligation to save. Quite the contrary, the ghost is the ghost is is much stricter than the trefa. Um, the people who disagree with the idea that most ghostsim die. Um, think don't think that a minority of gosasim die. What they think is that um, most gosasim die isn't enough to allow you to act. Okay, that's my uh, that's my presentation, and um, and uh, thank you, thank you for those of you who are brave and stayed all the way through. Uh, and now uh, you can all unmute yourselves and ask all the questions you want. Um, so, um, yeah. I, thinking about it from a medical point of view, and I looked at a number of articles, if you think about it just from a historical medical point of view, patients, people died from some sort of disease or some sort of injury, but the final common pathway was people either were too weak or not awake enough to eat or drink. And so basically it's a dehydration issue, and no matter <clears throat> whether you're injured by a person or injured you know, had a disease, eventually you stop eating and drinking. And then that's a positive feedback mechanism where you take in less, you're weaker, you take in even less, and then it gradually, you know, ends in death. And so, you know, what the research from hospice shows that if there are markers of um, things that you see, for example, breathing patterns, um, how, how, how full or not full your skin is, things like that. And actually not being able to close your eyes is, is actually a final sign of getting close to death. So there are signs that that you could say a ghost ace had, they had some sort of idea because everybody died at home. And if you saw enough people, you had some sort of idea of a constellation of physiological symptoms of what a ghost ace is. Um, and so we could say that this is what a ghost ace is. It turns out that we can interfere in that process by artificial feeding or ventilation or things like that, but, or treat the underlying condition. 
but we can still say that that's the category of ghosts. It's just that we have to do something to understand it differently because we can interfere. The other issue is that back then there was no difference between death and not recovering. In other words, you couldn't support people. If you weren't eating and drinking, there was no way to support your life. And so you just died or you got better. Now we can support people in comas or other you know, bad medical conditions. And so we have to distinguish between is the ghost say somebody who's going to die or is the ghost say somebody who's not going to get better? So let's try and think, deal with both of those questions that you have on the halacha now, right? I guess, you know, the extent that I'm, that it's worth listening to my opinion that I'm, you know, I'm dealing with abstraction. The first question is, sure, it's possible that there were conditions that were ghosts in the past and that nowadays have a much longer prognosis than they did then. Right? That's, if that's the case, you just have, to, but you have to realize that many of the halachot that relate to ghosts, specifically the law about women being able to remarry and mourning, have nothing to do with the physical condition of ghosts. They only have to do with life expectancy. Right. So now the question is then whether that's true about withdrawal of care or not. Right. Since we ha- we have no other halachot, right, where the right where the leniency depends on the status as opposed to right for all for, so far as we can tell, the status of ghosts is only a chumrah. Right? It only creates obligations. So claiming that there's a status of ghosts enables you to live longer for all purposes other than withdrawal of treatment would lead to stringency. And the question right, is, right. Do you, yes? You know, I, I agree with that. Um, right. So now the question is, what about, but maybe that's worth it, right? Or maybe we think that's just true. So maybe we should apply, apply it to this. So the issue I think here is, why do we allow withdrawal of treatment, assuming we pass in like that understanding of the Ramah? Okay, why do we allow it, right? How does it fit when... Ordinarily, a ghost says you have an obligation to save. You have to dig a ghost says out of a out of a, out of a fallen pit on Shabbat. So what's it, right? So if you have to dig a ghost says out of a fallen pit on Shabbat, why do we have to treat them? Right? So it can't be because they're dying, because they're dying, but you still have to dig them out of a pit on Shabbat to keep them alive for 10 seconds. So you need an explanation. So the explanation, I think, is very explicit in the Ramon and all his sources. The explanation is that not that there are people who are dying. The explanation is there are people whose souls cannot leave their body. Now that's a wild metaphysical claim, right? That's a wild metaphysical claim. And it's very hard to figure out how any kind of physiological condition can, right? There's no physical weakness that corresponds to that. You have to make metaphysical claims. Now there are people who make metaphysical claims. So in my brain death article, right? I quote Rechaim David Alevi makes that claim about brain dead patients. Um, right, I quoted other other people who makes that sort of metaphysical claim. Now you could try and extend that metaphysical claim, right, and say, right, you know, but, yeah, but it's and say there are conditions in which I know that the I know that the the soul of this patient is trying to depart but failing. Um, and you could say, for example, I think any patient you could say it about patients in um, chronic vegetative states, right, right. You could say it about any patient who who has no hope of recovering consciousness, right? You could, right? I don't, I think any conscious patient would have to ask them and decide if you believe them. My own, my own perspective, right? Lahalacha, if you, if I were to ask to address this, I believe, and it has come up a couple of times, is that I think that the precedent of the Ramah should be very, very limited. It should be limited maybe to the case of brain death. 
And that's the only case we should extend it. But where I, where I disagree with another premise, which is both Professor Rubens and Eric to share, which is that, that, that removal of treatment, withdrawal of treatment is only limited to the case called the ghosts. Right, there are other circumstances, which we can talk about all the narratives, right, uh, that, that uh, Professor Brody, right, as a coronal Racha put together. There are all sorts of other cases where Halacha might decide that for this patient, death is no longer a good. And so something like, you know, some version of the Hafen Kamocha means that your obligation to save the life of the person only applies so long as a reasonable, they, as long as they want, so long as they want it and a reasonable and or, and or a reason, well, say they wanted or a reasonable person would want it, right? So I think there's much more room to extend, to extend the right. There's rooms for patient autonomy in areas like that to discuss, right? Whether you're allowed to treat a patient who tells you not to. I think that that's a much more, uh, that's a much more um, rich area. Um, but I, you know, I have my biases, and my biases largely is is that I think that. Consciousness is a is a is an absolutely critical category. Um, right? I have deep trouble extending the category of ghosts to any patient who is conscious. Who you know there isn't a very clear notion that they're trying to die now. Um, right, but again, but I think that that's that's my personal psych. My theoretical framework is I think ghosts is really 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 narrow. The most you can extend the ghosts to is brain death. Um, probably, certainly not to most to to, you know, to long-term cancer patients, um, things like that. You can right, you, I, don't, I don't think you could do that. There are also different medical things, right? You know that sometimes nutrition doesn't extend life, right? That sometimes the risk of aspiration is greater than the, than the nutrition you provide, right? Those are all sorts of other ways in which there are lots of cases in which medical interventions do nothing, and it should be obvious that medical interventions that do nothing, there's no halachic obligation to to engage with them at all. Uh, right, that's an important thing. It's talked about, like when uh, Shlomo Zalman says that you can move a respirator from one patient to another when it's clear that the respiration respirator has no benefit at all for the first patient. So does that mean it won't extend life at all? That's what I think the simple meaning is. Or does it mean it won't it won't cure them, which right, which people want to try, which I think is a very very iffy reading of Shlomo Zalman. Jim, yeah, a couple things. Uh, one is research that we're now doing on locked-in patients mm-hmm. who, are, who appear to be uh, non-responsive, yet we now discover um, through deep brain stimulation that, or deep brain EEGs actually are responding to stimuli. So what we thought were unconscious patients are indeed more conscious than we think. Um, we have to sort of relook at the whole idea of what brain death is. It's, it's, it's becoming much more murky than when the Harvard brain death study was done several years ago. So, so okay, there's three things I'm going to say. One is, yeah, locked-in syndrome, I think, should be terrifying to everybody uh, right, you know, who, who made assumptions about what happened before. Um, that's true. Uh, I think that we should talk about two different things. Like one is consciousness in the sense of having in active mental life, uh, right? Which is, that's the, that's the kind of question about where you say, you know, is it in the best interest of the patient to live or not? But that I think is a really good challenge, you, right? You know, I always claim, right? You know, that some people think it's obvious, some people think it's ridiculous. If you claim the patient is not feeling any pain, it can't be in the interest of the patient to die because yeah. they're not, right? 
Yeah. They're not afshach, right? Either either they're in pain, which right, or the, right, in which case there's some kind of there's some kind of consciousness, or they're not. But you could argue, right? And so if they're having, you know, so for as far as you know, right, this patient is in the matrix, right? So that's it, right? Right. right? So that's one. Right. The other category said so what matters about consciousness is not pleasure or pain, right? Which is a pragmatic calculus. You can calculate the odds if you want. What matters is the opportunity to do mitzvot. All right. If they right, if they're never going to regain consciousness. The sense of gaining mitzvot, so then you're no longer in a religious calculus. Every one moment of life is worth, right? One moment of life is worth is worth you know an infinite amount, an infinite amount of heaven, because right? Because no, no, you know. So the most they're doing is they're having a neutral life, uh, a spiritually neutral life. So now you can make a cost benefit analysis. Now that's not going to work for Seneca Cohen, who thinks that your real spiritual life takes place while you're sleeping. But the introduction of Seneca Cohen into halacha is probably a bad idea at every at every level. <laughs> every level. I mean, I, I think the use the use of the notion of, of performing mitzvot is very useful uh, because it gets away from the notion of consciousness and what is a valuable or non-valuable life. Yeah. Uh, which can be very difficult to, to, to determine. But the idea of mitzvot is, in a sense, almost objective. Yeah. So that's what I mean by consciousness, right? As opposed to, as opposed to, you know, as opposed to mental activity. Right. Uh, right. You know, although dreams, right, dreams are all a complicated thing. And are you a, you know, a butterfly or right, a butterfly dreaming or a man or vice versa? Right. Those are all those are all real issues. But that's I, I have you know, again, those are my those are my prejudices. Um and to the extent that I have to Puskin, so my prejudices become halakha, and I think they have bases to which they're not everybody has the same prejudices. Um, right. And there are good reasons for arguing about them. And you know, and, and when people ask me, should I load about things like this, I try to be very transparent about the you know the extent to which I'm being idiosyncratic and the extent to which I'm just relaying conventional wisdom. Um, but that you know but in terms of what the texts say I'm I'm you know I, I am I'm pretty stark. I think what the texts say I think I think it's what the texts say. You know, again some of them are arguable, but I don't think that the position that there's a more makeal position than Ray Blake is arguable on the basis of I think the only way you can do it is by eliminating all the evidence, not by reinterpreting not by reinterpreting the evidence. You can just say, look, ghosts mean something different for these purposes, right? But then I think you're just better off not using the word ghosts. I agree. I Thank, you. Thank you. Thank uh, you. Okay, other questions? So just to be yeah. clear, um, you used a couple different terms, medical terms. So locked-in syndrome refers to a particular damage to the brainstem where you're, you're completely conscious, just that you're completely yes. paralyzed except for eye movements. There's brain death means that you really have zero brain function and this and then there's this in between is coma and what's now called minimally conscious state and those are completely different than brain death so the studies that show that people who in what we would have called persistent vegetative coma or things like that weren't conscious those have absolutely nothing to do with determinations I, of brain death They're completely i agree with different. you the only, two, the only things i would say about that right there you know i think we're going to disagree that's fine is a People claim we thought the same thing about people in the other conditions before we discovered locked-in syndrome, right? That that with right, that's the claim. Not that people claim brain death must be the same thing. It's just that people claim that certainty should be less than it was previously because of those, uh, right? Because of those, um, because of those conditions. Um, and then, you know, I was at the, at the Harvard uh, conference uh, two years ago where they did the case of uh, Jalia, whatever her name was. Uh, right, and I know that that's highly controversial, you know. So we could talk about it or not. Um, it, it's a whole. It was a very, it was a very disturbing conference. Uh, I have to say, for those of us who were more inclined to accept um, 
to accept the certainty of the diagnosis, um, particularly because uh, one of the, to me, like the, the, one of the figures who wrote the original criteria admitted that he had, um, th he had written things he knew were nonsense because he thought they would, they would sell. And they, that, that was the only way to get the thing across. It was really very disturbing. So I encourage watching the conference because it was really, I was very disturbed. Um, I was very disturbed, but I also free, you know, freely can say that, you know, as I said in the outset, I'm a, I'm a student of Roy Bleich. And, uh, and this is one of the issues where students Roy Bleich, even though I don't agree with halakhically, and I wrote, you know, the ways in which I, I, I have the other alternative halakhically, but on the facts, um, you know, I, I, I am convinced that he was ahead of his time. Uh, he was certainly right, and Rabbi was wrong, that's what I think, uh, right, about the, about the facts. And it might be that even though Rabbi was wrong, and there isn't complete lysis, that there's still something you can call brain death that met, that matches it. But I, I think that a lot of the psaac was, initial psaac was built on the misstatement that there was, that you could presume complete lysis on the basis of the diagnosis. And that I think Rabbi was right. And, you know, and his tests were right. So I'm, I'm much more nervous, but I agree with you that, you know, it would be just as astonishing if we discovered that brain dead patients had the kind of, had conscious life as it was, right, or more, or as more as it was to discover that certain kinds of patients would have been diagnosed with PBS, uh, right, have that kind of conscious life. I think that that's clear. And, and as I say, you know, I think that that's, Allah has to make cost-benefit analyses, and you can decide if you want to create a super, 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 super requirement of rove that's even higher than the requirement of HSH for uh, right for for uh, withdrawal treatment or not, because you think that there is a basic harm. See, there's a harm being done to people by being kept alive under certain circumstances, um, and I, I think the harm is better framed in the metaphysical language. But then I don't know. You know, it takes a lot to make metaphysical claims about the state of the soul. Um, since I haven't seen one, but eventually we'll be able to stain it, maybe. <laughs> right? Well, we can stain it, right? That we, you know, we can't weigh it. That didn't seem to. That doesn't seem to have worked terribly well, but people tried. Uh, people are still trying to weigh it. I think, right? There's still that Duke study, right? That uh, right. that tries to explain how you know how many how much angels add to the weight of a pin. Um, so maybe. All right. Anyone else? Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Spillan, for setting for setting this up so well. I will look forward to your having many more comments in the future. I imagine. Yeah, I, right. I, I go by Noam unless you're my patient. So. Uh. All right, I can be already. Noam is fine. So, please call me Noam. Dr. Spillan is for my patients. Um, <laughs> okay. Etiquette. I will look forward to comments, and uh, for all of you, thank you. For thank you. This was really great. cool. That so many people turned out on uh, thirty seconds notice. Thank you. <laughs> Let's go. Finished